Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. It's comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. It's another special. It's very special. Do you know, it was pointed out to me by uh, the mighty Bob Fisher. Hi, Bob. Who hosts um, Superman podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Oh, that's what it's right. It's very good. I like Superman Forever Radio. And he pointed out to me, we've put more shows out since we stopped doing regular shows than he has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just, we just can't go back to... That amused me. We just can't go back to civilian life. Though. No, it's just, once, you, once you're trapped in the podcasting loop, you just keep back. you're stuck here forever. It's, it's a pull. It is. It's an irresistible pull, as Sean Connery put it in Highlander. Yes, but Sean Connery's irresistible pull is completely different <laughs> to that of a podcast. Miss Money Penny, come into my orbit, Miss Money Penny. I'm James Bond. Ooh la la. Ding dong. Suddenly I'm Leslie Phillips and not yeah. Sean Connery. Anyway, we're back. We've got a special. We've got a very special comic. Look at that. Look at mm. the size of that. They don't make them like that anymore. They don't make them like that anymore. No, that's very true. Um, what's happened in the comics world since we last got together? Oh, DC are doing a not reboot. Yeah, DC are doing a backdoor. For the <laughs> are they really? 52. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Johns has been given control of DC Comics, but it's, this is what it seems like to me. Right. Because he's the face of this initiative rather than the D, the Dio and Lee. Yeah. Is that because people like Jeff Johns are like Jeff? You you go you go calm them down. I, I suspect that that's what it is, yes. I think there was that whole thing recently, wasn't there, that retailers have been publicly yeah. shaming them with which, regards to their sales figures. Which is when you should really reconsider who's in charge. Yeah, so I think Didio and Lee have kind of stepped back a bit. Jim Lee's busy redoing Scooby-Doo. Yeah, he is. It yeah. is, isn't he? So, and, and they've pushed Jeff Johns forward, who looks like a man who's got enough work to do. Yeah. Judging by that video, the poor man looks absolutely shattered. And uh, they've said, all right, Jeff, you, you make our comics good again. And so Jeff's been put in charge, and everything's called Rebirth. Yeah. Because Flash Rebirth, Green Lantern Rebirth. So they're cashing in on that. So they're cashing in on the Rebirth. I mean, fair play to him. Fair play to him for, A, addressing the criticism. Yeah, that uh, sales are tanking on everything that's not called Batman or Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. So fair play to him for addressing that, and fair play to him for what they're doing with the retailers. Apparently, they're going to give them one hundred percent of the money back for any advertising they do for this new stuff, right? And fifty percent retailer initiative or incentive, it's called, into on sending the books back if they don't sell. Right. So fair play for all of that. Let's just see a if they're any good. Yeah, and b if we as an audience, are willing to, to go back after. But it still reeks of desperation. Oh yeah, it stinks of desperation. And it, it absolutely still, stinks of desperation. It's still, this is no different from any other... 
and Man. you know, and as usual, you've got your DC versus your Marvel fans. Well, Marvel renumber with number one all the time. Valid point. Yeah. Not taking that away from you. They do. It's still annoying as hell when they do it. Yeah. It's with it's. Well, it's interesting about DC is that Action and Detective are going back to the pre fifty two numbering. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. But then we still get an entire month that's just special one shots. Mm. I mean, they're and they're lowering the price. Yeah. So okay. let's give them credit on that. They're knocking a couple of dollars off the price. They're knocking about to two ninety nine. Mm. So that's going to make them cheaper. Oh yeah, but will that mean because they do the glossy cardstock covers and they do extra sized issues? No, they'll probably just do variant covers. I would have thought. See, I don't mind. Um, take the quality of Batman. Batman's a three ninety nine book, isn't it? Mm. But you get better paper stock. You get better the glossy covers, and you get the backup strips. Yeah. Um, so for that, the extra dollar is worth it. But is but Batman's the only book I buy. Yeah. I get Justice League because you still read it. Oh, I've not read it. In well, I've not read any of Dark Side. To be War. fair, I've not been able to read it. So, yeah. so as soon as Dark Side what finishes, I'm going to read all of that. I've read the first chapter. Um, I mean, some people have complained that retroactively making the new Fifty Two part of the Action Comics Detective Comics numbering sucks. But Marvel did that all the time. Yeah. Whenever they're renumbered back at number one with Thor, Captain America. Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man. Am I missing any? They retroactively counted that numbering when they reverted to the original numbering. Yes, there was a time on Spider-Man when they had both the yeah. numbers. Yeah, I think that was across the board. Right. They would have both numbers on. That was a Quizard, I think, wasn't I it? I just used Spider-Man because I remember. Yeah, well, that's the only yeah. book I've consistently bought, isn't it? And it's less that we're not just knocking on DC here. I don't buy... I only buy two Marvel books. Mm. Not counting the Star Wars titles, right, which right, I right, absolutely right, yeah. adore. But take Star Wars out of the equation, I'm buying Amazing Spider-Man and Black Widow. Right. And I'm only buying Black Widow because it's Mark Wade and Chris Samney. Yeah. And that may get the chop if it's no good. And a lot of it comes down to how much these things cost. Yeah. I didn't buy Totally Awesome Hulk because of the price. That's the bottom line. So DC reducing the price of them is a step in the right direction. Mm. If I actually have any faith that they'll be any good. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a case of wait and see and see if the books are going to be any good this time round. Because New 52 started promisingly, and then slowly just dribbled away mm. as I lost interest. But tellingly, you lost interest as well. That's because everything I did follow at the start died. Yeah. You liked Lemire on Swamp Thing. It was Snyder on Swamp Thing. Snyder Lemire on Swamp and Animal Thing. Man. Animal Man. Those two, well, those two ended, didn't they? Uh, didn't they Animal finish Man. their runs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Swamp Thing carried on, and Animal Man went into Justice League United, which I lost interest in. Because mm. I think Lemire stepped off. He, did, he went over to Green Arrow, didn't he? Or did he go over he to Hawkman? He did Hawk Green Man. Arrow at the same Hawk time. Guy. And then he went on to Hawkeye. Because Green Arrow, the Adria, Adrian... Was it Andrea Sorrentino? Yeah. Her art was really good. Yes. Or he. It may be he. I don't know if it's a foreigner. Yeah. Because the Andrea can be a... Either name I think it's a guy, but I'm not. Uh, it could be, yeah. So, as with everything, let's let's wait and see and see if the books are any good, yeah. and then let's see how Marvel counters, yeah. because they will, and hopefully Marvel will counter with reducing the price of their comics. Oh, they won't. They'll no. probably just give you two digital cards. Yeah. <laughs> That's good of them. It's very nice of them to do that. In time. Just in case the first one rips. <laughs> Oh, I am so annoyed with the digital cards. You know why? Because <laughs> of the amount of times they've ripped. Well, that that as well. But um, I realised that I was I was looking through James Robinson's Fantastic Forum, and I was going to read it all because I never finished reading it all. And uh, I realised I'd never put the digital code in for issue eight. 
Right. So I dug the comic out, peeled the cord back, typed it in. This is expired. expired. Bullshit! <laughs> I've paid for that comic. Yeah. That code should not expire until I type it in. That's fair, yeah. I think. I think ex- putting an expiry date on them is bollocks. Don't have an expiry date on a comic. No, well, that's true. So to read that run, I can read the first seven on my iPad and then I have to go through my long boxes for issue eight and then I can read the rest of them. Yeah. So that, that annoyed me, Marvel. It annoyed me. The other, the other thing annoyed if me. If you're listening, Kazada. Yeah. <laughs> Daredevil, I ripped one once, couldn't read the code. Right. I emailed the editor and said, Look, here's proof. I bought the comic, send me another code. Never heard a thing. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it for comic book news. Glad you could join us. <laughs> Should we do some emails before we cover? Yeah, yeah. Because we have got quite a lot of emails, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I did complain, didn't I? Just because show's ended. Yeah, yeah. Can Speak send us, us emails. So, yeah, so, all send us. so that's nice that people send us emails. These are primarily about Infinite Crisis and the Christmas special, right? Which is such a long time ago now. Because yeah. peek behind the curtain, lovely listener, you, you've been getting episodes throughout January, February, and into March. Yes. But we've not recorded together since Christmas. Yes. Since before Christmas. No, it's just after just Christmas, after, wasn't yeah. it? And yeah. as we record this, it's it's now nearly March. It is. So. So the, there's, we've not done one for a while, so the email is backlogging. Infinite Crisis is the first email. Yeah, we're still getting an email about that. Infinite Crisis. We did that. We did that, yeah. Do you forget what we did? I do. I frequently forget You know forget what I what remembered the other day? What? Marvel versus... Uh, Avengers versus X-Men was a thing. Yes. And we covered it. Not that we covered it, just that it was a thing. Well, I was chatting with Michael Bailey on first, but about Marvel versus DC, and I had to, didn't I yell to you? Yeah. So it must have been this weekend. Yes. Because you were at home. And I yelled to you, did we do Marvel vs. DC? Because he was ringing some faint bells. But yeah, we did, didn't we? Yes. So yeah, we did that one as well. So you forget what you cover when you've done God knows how many of these things at this point. When it comes to these mega events, you tend to They all blur into one, don't they? They do do all blur into one. Anyway, Tom Panarese's email then. It's always nice to hear from from Tom. Host of Pop Culture Affidavit and his in-country the Nam podcast and, and there's probably many others as well you can't just do one you can't podcast once, once you pop, yeah you just stop. have to keep oh you know what we've not mentioned I got arrested for that actually don't don't mention that because the court case is still pending well, so we can't yeah, talk about yeah, it yeah, right. do you know what we've not mentioned what we did a long play we did. On 2 there's this podcast called Longplay where random people get together and talk about records, mm. their favourite records. They have to be proper records. Yes. Greatest hits don't count. Oh, I hate so greatest it has hits. So it has to be proper record. And uh, over the Christmas time, Michael and I recorded a Longplay all about the Smiths' Strange Ways Here We Come. Mm. It was great fun. It was. Editing it was a pain in the arse. Yeah, you Because did, we, yeah. We, we, we'd never done that before, so we kind of cocked it up a bit. Yeah. So it made editing it a pain in the ass. But we, we would have cocked it up regardless of how many times we did it. We would have, because that's our stock in trade, isn't it? Yeah. That we, we cocked this stuff up. So uh, go, and li- go and find that and listen to it. It's like a bonus episode of Hey Kids Comics where we don't talk about comics. I started working on another long play on my own, and then someone else stole my idea. Ah, no, they didn't. Tom, Tom of this email mm. is more than willing to do your idea with you if you two can make that dovetail over the summer. When you're both off. Right, okay. he's, he's happy to do that. We have already spoken to him. I've already, you? already laid you? the ground rules <laughs> for, uh, for borrowing my co-host. He's my agent now. <laughs> Terms are, are ongoing. <laughs> he's got to agree to the salary yet. Because, right. you know, you're not cheap. <laughs> and it, we've got to put that out there straight up top. Anyone wants to use Michael for their show, he does not come cheap. Yeah, you, and you've got to bar to him in. You'll haul, haul yourself out for anything. I'll haul myself out to anybody, yes. <laughs> 
But you, yeah, yeah. you're you're exclusive. You're you're very you know you're very picky, and uh, for the salary that you receive for that, I just that, keep getting requests every day. Of which I get ten percent. Yeah, yeah. The salary that you get for that is is is, is high, mm-hmm. as understandably for uh, yeah. a podcasting co-host of your caliber. <laughs> Oh, we almost managed that with a straight face. I know. I know. It's, it's, anyway. It's funny because my rates are not free. <laughs> that's about it. Your rates are a Big Mac and a pint of Guinness, dude. Oh, that's... We'll go for that, actually. <laughs> um, anyway, Tom's email, which I keep interrupting. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Tom. Good to have you back, if only for specials. Whilst I admit that I was not always current with the show. Anyway, enough for that email. I'm kidding. I always enjoy hearing your in-depth examination of comic storylines. Your Infinite Crisis two-parter was no exception. And it, you mentioned, and I apologise if I'm misquoting, at this case, uh, at this juncture, Tom, not this case, I wouldn't remember. Mm. I wouldn't remember whether you were misquoting or not. Infinite Crisis was months ago. Infinite Crisis was a series that marked your walking away from DC, or at least the point where things started to sour. Funnily enough, back in 2005, it was the opposite for me, and I wouldn't sour on DC until Final Crisis, which caused me to completely walk away from comics for a year and a half. I honestly currently only read one book from DC, so do I, pretty much. Um, So it's not like I've come back. But in 2005, things were different. My wife and I had moved from the Washington, D.C. area to Charlottesville, Virginia, and we were living in a crappy apartment, and I was working temp jobs until I got my teaching license. I did have some spending money and a new comic store to visit, and on one visit I bought Countdown to Infinite Crisis and got sucked into all of the build-up to the crossover. This, it seemed, was going to be huge, and I found myself going to the store every Wednesday on my lunch break to pick whatever series was out that week, read them, and then got on the DCComics.com message board to discuss the answers to some of our unanswered questions. This continued through the entire series as well, which, while not as good as the series that inspired it and the original Crisis, which is my favourite mini-maxi-series of all time, it's still a great read that I think is slightly sullied by what came after, with the exception of 52. Much of the post-ICDCU was a mess. Your analysis was spot on, especially when it came to your discussion of the difference between the original comic and the trade paperback or omnibus. Although at least the trade paperback, which I own, has a couple of nice text pieces that talk about everything that went on behind the scenes and even show some of the changes. The one deleted piece that I wish had been in the actual comic and added to the trade was an extended version of the meeting between Wonder Woman and the Earth 2 Wonder Woman. The missing pages were never inked, so the trade paperback shows only Phil Jimenez's pencils, which are absolutely gorgeous, and would have provided a great character moment for Diana. Furthermore, as much as I love much of the artwork throughout the series, I wish Jimenez had been able to do the entire storyline. I've loved his artwork since I first saw it in Titans back in the early 90s. Yes, it's very Perez-inspired, but I think that was the reason I loved it to begin with. And especially in 1993, when every newcomer seemed to be an image copycat, it was nice to have a Perez clone. I'm getting a little long-winded here and have begun to realise that I have so much to say about Infinite Crisis. I could probably do my own episode, or at least a blog post. Do it! Do your own episode about Infinite Crisis. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be interesting. Or a blog post. Either way, I'll read them. After all, I haven't touched on why I love the return of Donna Troy and seem to be the only one who does. I'm not a fan of the use of photoshopped Earth or why I will never forgive Jeff Johns for his I hate the 90s Titans so I'm going to kill them Smallville battle. I will mention one more thing. You talked briefly about Johns and Alex Ross's sequel to Kingdom Come and called it The Kingdom. This is actually inaccurate because Johns and Ross did the Justice Society of America storyline called Thy Kingdom Come... 
post-Infinite Crisis. The Kingdom from 1998 was the Mark Wade-written series that was his sequel to Kingdom Come, which introduced the concept of hyper-time, something that fell by the wayside by the time Dan DiDio took over. However, the Kingdom is important because it opens and closes with a mysterious figure trying to break free of a reality that has proven to be a prison. He puts some cracks in that reality at the end of the story. That person? Superman of Earth 2. So kudos to Jeff Johns for taking that moment and going with it. Another great episode. I can't wait for the next. All the best, Tom. Well, you have to wait a little bit longer now. Mm-hmm. In between shows. That's very appreciated. I encourage you to do your own Infinite Crisis episode. Uh, or blog post. Whichever. I'll read and all listen. And I just want to throw a shout out to Michael Bailey who sent me the three hardcover trade paperbacks for that Justice Society of America storyline that comprised the Thy Kingdom Come story. They're all on that bookshelf over there. Yeah. Michael sent me them for Christmas. So thank you very much, Michael. It was very much appreciated. So we'll get around to that one day. Jason Treader's emailed in saying Stegron and more. So this we're on to the Christmas one. Right. Yeah. I know you're blanking over at this. When did we do this? Just give me some prompt cards. <laughs> the Christmas show. Ah, yes. I remember this. <laughs> Greetings, said Jason. The funny thing about Stegron is he has been back. I got his reappearance in the Lethal Foes of Spider-Man miniseries, and after that, Stegron fought Thunderstrike and Black Panther in Thunderstrike's title. He then fought Spider-Man, the Hulk, Kazar, and Shana the Sea Devil. The Sea Devil. <laughs> Shana the She Devil. That's a Doctor Who episode, isn't it? Shana the Sea Devil. Uh, in the first Sensational Spider-Man, and then appeared in the second Sensational Spider-Man, which was really good and underrated. And I believe the first appearance of the Iron Spider Suit was in that title. I should have remembered that. Because Mike Waringo drew the uh, sec, that, but it's not the second Stegron appearance because he's in a couple of Marvel team ups as well, aren't he? But Mike Waringo drew that sensational Spider-Man arc, right? And I do like Mike Waringo, and it's it's not a bad little story that because it got Mike Waringo that one. Uh, Stegron hasn't had a lewd list of comics but he seems to get used mostly to write Spider-Man I also read most of these stories not out of trying to go through Stegron's history it just ended up that he was in stuff I was reading nothing to say on the Superman issue it was interesting it sounded like fun also interesting how tightly paced it was insert Bendis joke here about how much he's not able to tightly pace things I'm glad he went somewhere in a different direction though Mm. I thought he was going to say let's insert a joke there about Bendis being not tight because that would have took us in a completely different direction. To be honest, that didn't occur to me. I think you were the only one. I was the only one that I can't. Okay. Oh, speaking of which, have you seen that our most downloaded episode of 2015 was Everybody Loves Dick? Uh, you keep frequently saying. So, we're calling this episode, for reasons that will become obvious later, How Do You Get So Hard So Quickly? I think we're going to try and beat those Everybody Loves Dick downloads. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is the fall of Hey Kids Comics. Sex sells, dude. Oh, <laughs> That's a good title as well for an episode of Fall of Fake Kids Comics. Oh, right, right. Sex Sells Dudes is a good title. Not Fall of Fake Kids Comics. Not into an eruption of literary clashing (laughs) with juvenile pop jokes. Yeah. I I went to uni to expand my mind, not to... Not to just (laughs) revel in juvenile sex gags. If that pumps up the download figures, (laughs) that's all I'm saying to you. Uh, David Gutierrez has emailed in. The Mexican. Andrew and Michael, dude. I'm Mexican. Michael cannot pass for a Mexican. <laughs> oh, come on, I don't insult your friends. <laughs> no, do you remember we had that conversation where somebody was going to be offended that I said you were Mexican? Right. It's um, surprising that I remember that conversation. I, I clearly don't. don't. I, I yeah, don't. Yeah. I feel like I offended. To, if I did offend somebody, I'm very sorry. David's not offended. I laughed at it. I took it as a joke. Right. If David didn't mean it as a joke, I apologise for laughing. <laughs> We've just lost one We've listener. just lost one list. That's somebody not listening to the Everybody Loves Dick sequel. <laughs> 
Oh dear me. It's like we don't, we don't go away. Yeah. Uh, Happy New Year, Leylands. It's a bit late. This is from Chris Franklin. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Christopher. Boy, that was a fun one. You can tell you two were in good holiday spirits. Lots of giggling, even from Michael, which is unusual. My son Andrew bought himself Battlefront for PS4, so we may have to break down and pay that ridiculous new fee to play online, so we can team up with the Leylands and go on speed about Jorah. Do it! Send us your username, Chris. Well, it was it was online was free to play this weekend. Was it? But it's now Sunday. Oh, that sucks, doesn't it? Because we have had a couple of online games, haven't we? Me, you, have, our yeah. pal Scott Allison, and Bill Robinson. Dr. Mm-hmm. Bill joined it. So that was, and Bill's son. So that was, yeah. that was a fun game. So Chris, if you want to send me whatever your username is... And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll battlefront together at some point in the future. You guys got some great swag, continues Chris. I had a very mego Christmas with plenty of new remego figures being put out by companies like EMCE and Figures Toy Company under the tree. Plus a vintage map table to finish off my mego Hall of Justice playset. Speaking of Megos, I had that 12-inch Chris Reeve Superman figure as a kid as well. I have him and Lex now and really need Zod and Jorel, even though his whole point is to die. It's a sickness. And my dad got me the last volume of Mark Cushman's excellent Star Trek These Are The Voyages books. I bought the first one based on your recommendation, Andy, and I devoured it. I could literally throw every other Trek book I have away. These are now the Trek History Bibles. I never read that Spider-Man story, but it sounded like fun. And you can't go wrong with Ween and Andrew on anything, guaranteed goodness. I have read the Superman story, I think from one of the DC Blue Ribbon Digests. I was never a fan of Frank Chiramonti's inks over Swamp, too chiselled, much like the later Mike DiCarlo, who overpowers everybody. I enjoy Bizarro more in theory than in execution usually, but this one is a good read. I do recall this was around the time that DC really steamed up the Supes and Lois romance to match the movie. The books got a bit of a shot in the arm in the early 80s when Marv Wolfman and Gil Kane came aboard, but those books are sadly overlooked by most. By the time Crisis actually came around, editor Schwartz had reverted back to Mark Weisinger-era silliness, so it looked like Byrne was really needed. And I suppose he was. Uh, I love those Marv Wolfman, Gil Kane, Superman. I don't think you've ever read them, have you? Me and Bailey, Michael Bailey, and me and Scott Garner have talked frequently about covering them on a show somewhere, and right. it's never happened. Needs to happen. It, do, it does. I love those Gil Kane comics. I love Gil Kane. I'm a big fan of Gil Kane. I like that he's he's completely not like anybody else. Yeah. He's completely different to everybody else, which is what I like about him. You guys brought up how the much wackier elements of Superman the movie are straight out of the contemporary comics. I agree. I even think Superman 3 is very similar to many a Bronze Age tale where a hapless no-one is manipulated by an evil mastermind and runs afoul of Superman. The only problem is that's a plot worthy of a one-off monthly comic, not a highly anticipated big-budget sequel. Looking forward to all you have planned in the coming months and a happy new year to you two, the other Leyland kiddos, and the long-suffering Mrs. Chris. She's not that long-suffering. You know, I always pay her back. How long, how long have you been married? Quite a long time. Yeah. That's quite a long time. All right, all right. <laughs> I take that back. It is long suffering. <laughs> all right, okay. We'll we'll plug somebody's show at this point. It's ages away from being edited. I have no idea what it's going to be. And uh, we'll be back after this break with the greatest superhero team up of all time: the Battle of the Century. Oh yeah, seventy-five. Oh no, we'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't let them in. Star Wars, those great Star Wars, talking about Star Wars on a podcast. 
I'm Ryan Daly. And welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast! Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? <sighs> I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode. On Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first team-up between the two titans of comic book publishing, Marvel and DC, was a comic book adaptation of the MGM movie, The Wizard of Oz. We're not doing a show about that. What we are doing a show about is the second Marvel-DC joint venture, Superman versus The Amazing Spider-Man. Just roll that title around your tongue. Superman versus The Amazing Spider-Man. It's a tantalising prospect. The two biggest icons of the two biggest comic book publishers on Earth together in one story. This needed to be big, not just in scope, but in presentation. As such, it was decided that this story would see print as a treasury edition. For those unaware, a treasury edition was a huge comic book, normally 10 inch by 13 inch in size, that really allowed the art to shine. For the most part, though, treasuries were reprints, good reprints, that allowed readers to really savour Ditko, Kirby, Barry Smith and Neil Adams' exquisite art, but it was still art drawn for the regular comics. However, this story was drawn with the treasury format in mind and, as such, makes it count. As with a lot of these collaborations, and another way The Wizard of Oz differs, was the creative team. For a massive project such as this, the job was split right down the middle. The Wizard of Oz was pretty much a Marvel production, but put out by the two companies. For Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man, the creative tasks were meted out evenly. As such, the writer was a DC writer, albeit one who had just defected from Marvel, Jerry Conway. Conway was at that point one of the few, if not only, writers to have worked on both Superman and Spider-Man, and so was a natural choice. As was the man picked to be the artist, Ross Andrew. Again, Andrew was one of the few to have worked on both characters. Andrew wanted Mike Esposito, his longtime collaborator, to ink the book, but instead Dick Giordano was chosen as per the DC Marvel split. Even the colouring and lettering was split between the two companies. The credits for this are disputed. Infantino and Stan Lee are simply credited as presenting this tale, although the 1991 reprint states they edited it. Writer Jerry Conway, in a 2009 interview, said he did most of the editorial grunt work. Likewise, the art is credited to Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano, but Giordano claims that Neil Adams redrew a lot of the Superman figures, something he wasn't asked to do. Adams, for his part, stated that he did ask Giordano, and Giordano said that as long as he didn't change the basic layout, he could go for it. 
Adams felt that some of Andrew's anatomy was a little off, so what he did was pencil over Andrew's pencils, fixing small details and poses. In addition, both Terry Austin and Bob Wyasek inked portions of the book, with Austin providing background inks on most pages, except for three pages of the third prologue, which was Wyasek. People say I don't do my research. (laughs) To further confuse matters, Joe Rubenstein and John Romita Sr. also contributed to the book, Rubenstein on some backgrounds, and Romita redrawing some of the Marvel faces. Ramita's contribution isn't that big of a surprise. As Marvel's art director, Ramita performed this duty all the time to keep the characters on model, and there are times I wish he was still doing it today. To be fair, Ramita has said that he's not really a fan of doing that over artists like Andrew, who had a long-established relationship with the character of Spider-Man. www.adelaidecomicsandbooks.com, superspidey.html, has a great article by Daniel Best all about this, an article that also appeared in abridged form in back issue, issue 11. Of course, Rob Kelly's excellent resource, treasuryeditions.com, is also worth a look. It's quite an interesting, convoluted backstory, that, isn't it? It is, yeah. You're impressed by that, aren't you? I'm quite... You see how much time I've got to do research now we don't do this on a <laughs> weekly basis? You've had three months to do I've that. I've had three months to work on this, yeah. And I only did this, Pete Behind the Kirk, because I thought you were coming on for half term. Yeah. And then it looked like you weren't coming on for half term, so I thought, I've done all this bloody work for nothing. <laughs> so you're on for a weekend just to get your washing done. Yeah. And so I've corralled you into recording. I, I had to, to book him. Washing done. I, didn't, I had to boot your time, though. You did. You I've did. had to slot you in around everything else you want to do while you're on. <laughs> anyway, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man originally came out on the 2nd of January 1976. So this year, this edition celebrates its 40th birthday. As such, Michael and I thought this would be the time to cover this story and revel not only in its importance in comic book lore, but its sheer magnificence. I want to say Michael and I, I meant me. Okay. Well, you didn't choose this, did you? I got a text saying, what are we covering? That's Superman that's, vs. The Amazing Spider-Man. That's because you sent me a message saying, oh, I've already planned out a show. I'm not even <laughs> back yet, and you've planned a show. Well, no, that's not strictly true. We'd planned Captain America White. Yes. But as of this record, and I don't have the, the hardcover graphic novel yet. So we've, we've it's still, I'm still, I still don't believe it's actually out. It's done, it's done and dusted. Until I have reports from people that have read it. Bloody hell, yeah. really? Really? Yeah. So I'm it's still, real. I'm still, until it's in my hand. Yeah, it's not just a figment of your fevered imagination now. It's it's a real thing. I can't slag it off anymore. <laughs> you may be able to after we've read it. <laughs> you never know. But that's for next time. If I've got the copy, by the way. Yes. If not, we'll, we'll cover something else when we do another special. Uh, I came to this edition late. Never read this as a kid, as I was four in 1976. and never saw it on the stands. I was there for the second Superman-Spider-Man team-up, which we covered back in our Happy Birthday Superman series, but with this one, I missed the boat. I did covet it, though, being familiar with all the adverts for it in the back of the British reprint weeklies. I think the first time I got to read the story in full was when Marvel reprinted it as a normal-sized comic in 1991. I loved it so much, it was one of the first things I searched for on eBay when that became a thing in the latter half of the 90s. Uh, I don't remember how long it was before I got a copy, but that Treasury Edition is the one we're reading right now. Listen, lovely listener. Real comics! Massive comics, not digital filth. Yeah. Can't get that digital, can you? You can't. You need a massive monitor for that, wouldn't you? Even on a monitor. Even on a monitor. It's just glorious. I'm sat here doing Michael's trick of stroke, innit? You are. The comic. <laughs> Let's just make that clear. Everybody loves Dick. <laughs> Everybody does, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the cover, speaking of, is one of those comic book images that has become iconic. It's also one of those rare covers that deserves the tag. 
Spider-Man stands on a transmission tower, fists clenched, as Superman swoops around him. New York sprawls in the background, as befits a massive undertaking such as this. The cover was worked on extensively by both DC and Marvel, with then DC editorial director Carmine Infantino sketching up a number of different layouts. When the final one was approved, Ross Andrew penciled and Dick Giordano inked. It has been parodied and homaged many times, with an Alex Ross version being one of the more recognisable. What do you think of that cover? I think it's great. It's stunning! It's absolutely gorgeous. Top of the Empire State. Are they on top of Empire State, though? Yes. Is that where they are? Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. I would oh, because they, they focus on it quite a bit in the story. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Just love New York in the background. Yeah. What's great about it is it's not just Superman and Spider Man. Hmm. There's a whole background of New York. Yeah. The backgrounds in this are stunning. Yeah. Andrew was one of those artists. I think I've got a note about it later. Where he would go around New York mm. with his camera depending on what the story was asking for and he would take photos you know right. back before we could google everything yeah and he would take photos so whether he went to the top of the Empire State Building for that or whether he just found a picture I don't know mm. but kudos as well to Terry Austin who did a lot of the inking on the backgrounds because uh, some of them are absolutely fantastic it's a very Marvel cover yeah. isn't it you know DC heroes didn't really tend to beat each other up as much as Marvel heroes did but along with the title Superman versus the Maiden Spider-Man, it makes it appear this is going to be a slugfest. Mm. The versus is, is very prominent on the cover, like it's going to be a fight. The tagline, the battle of the century, adds credence to the theory that it's going to be a slugfest. But I doubt anyone would argue with the greatest superhero team-up of all time. Yeah. Name one that's better. Probably more anticipated was X-Men Teen Titans. That's not a treasury, dude. Is it not? No, it's just a normal side comic. Right. And that, that could be a treasury Walt Simonson drew and it's glorious but it could be a what treasury what was a great superior team uh, another great Puni- superior Punisher team Punisher and Batman Punisher and Batman oh. Punisher and Archie oh god yeah Punisher and Archie that's going on your greatest superior team of all time I think it, it would definitely rival Superman versus <laughs> certainly for importance well, of course in yeah. cross company marketing mm-hmm. Punisher versus Archie is up there with this I will give you that <laughs> don't know what I mean Terribly serious. It's also nice to contrast the colours. Superman's red and blues seem to be a fur bit lighter than Spider-Man's. Yeah. Spider-Man's very dark blue, which is good, isn't it? Mm. It's contrasting the different approaches of, uh, of the two comics. The back cover is also by Ross Andrew and Jick Diodano. Oh, Giordano. Did I say Jick Diodano then? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Spoonerism. <laughs> Dick Giordano, it's more friendly. Superman and Spider-Man stand back to back, arms folded across their chests, breaking the fourth wall and smiling out at us, the readers. Long before Deadpool did it, let's just point that out. Um, Superman and Spider-Man, well, Superman's smiling. Spider-Man could just be scowling for all we know. Yeah. He could be looking at us going, I don't want to be here, I don't want to take this photo, I've got an elsewhere to be, can we just get it out? Who'd have thought Spider-Man would be the prima donna? (laughs) I like the body language as well. Superman is much wider yeah. and taller than Spider-Man. Mm. I like that. I think that's quite cool. Good, uh, good use of body language in artwork. What did you think of the back cover? Oh, it's, it's, it does the job, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not as good as the front cover. No, well, it, it doesn't have to be, really. That, that, that's after you've read the story in the chums. Yeah. As opposed to the beginning of the story with their, with their antagonists. It looks kind of like one of those... Uh, 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 advertising banners you get on American TV <laughs> this guy <laughs> <laughs> for bad sitcoms yeah yeah okay fair enough today in Superman vs. Spider-Man Superman did you leave the toilet seat up again <laughs> anyway 
Shall we do the synopsis, which is long? Yes. Do you want to go and make a drink or something? Because <laughs> this is 96 pages. Lovely listener. Prologue 1. Another day in Metropolis. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and a giant robot is tearing up the downtown. After property damage on a Man of Steel level, the caped wonder stuns the city by getting tossed around town. The robot removes the roof from a Star Labs building like it's a Lego piece and daintily removes a small computer key from the lab. It then stomps off, but Superman drives it into the ground, preventing further movement. However, the head of the robot detaches and streaks off into the sky. Superman follows the big giant head, but this is merely a decoy, allowing Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal mind of our time, time. to steal away using a jetpack that belches pollution into the atmosphere. Superman witnesses none of this and decides to return to the WGBS building to attend a meeting as Clark Kent. This accomplishes nothing really, but Superman realises what a fool he was not following the trail earlier and uses his heat vision to track the robot to the Metropolis Bay. There he finds an undersea lab on spindly legs that somehow manages to walk. It is, of course, owned by Lex Luthor. After battling through lasers composed of red sunlight, a temporarily blinded Superman doesn't see Lex send the computer key through a pneumatic tube to a secret location. Superman recovers and blasts the hull of the lab, causing the sea to come crashing in, and Lex panics, thinking he's about to drown. Superman takes Lex to jail. For no reason that has thus far been explained, the entire cast of Superman comics then board a flight to New York. Prologue 2. Another night in New York City. The moon is bright, the chill is biting, and mass men are robbing the Metropolitan Museum. Luckily, Spider-Man is on hand with his trusty camera to prevent the robbery. But this doesn't turn out to be as easy as he hoped when Dr. Octopus shows up. Ock is the mastermind behind this pointless and ultimately unexplained endeavour. Without warning, Doc Ock's flying octopus appears and it overpowers Spider-Man. Ock and his cronies escape with the stolen baubles and Spidey comes to just in time to not be captured by the police. He races over to the Daily Bugle to sell the pictures he took as Peter Parker, but this backfires when neither he nor Bugle editor J. Jonah Jameson check the pictures, and they are revealed to be blurry shots of people's elbows. Jonah throws a hissy fit, and then throws Peter out. Peter's spider sense then reacts to a blimp high above. He changes back to Spider-Man to pursue, but he's shocked that the blimp is tissue paper, and inside is Dr. Octopus's flying octopus. Really? That sounds like a Beatles album. Ock has ditched his men and Spider-Man crashes the craft in the Central Park Reservoir. Ock is carted off to jail and the next day the entire cast of Spider-Man comics, except Aunt May, are off to the World News Conference in New York. They're already in New York so they don't have to get a plane. That was good that, wasn't it? Prologue 3. Otto Octavius and Lex Luthor are put in jail together. Now I know what you're thinking and you're right. This, you're thinking, is a dumb idea. Before you can say Luther has a false epidermis under his arm with an escape kit in it, Luther and Octopus have fled, both vowing to aid each other in the destruction of their arch foes. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? It was. God, we haven't even started the story yet. Chapter 1. A Duel of Titans. By pure coincidence, the WGBS and Bugle staff arrive at the conference at the same time. Jonah gives Peter a hard time for the photo snafu, and Peter yells at him for being a jackass. Meanwhile, Clark is about to be replaced by Walter Cronkite. 
Clark, nevertheless, has time to tell Lois about Comlab 1, the world's first orbiting communication satellite, which I'm sure will never be mentioned again. Lois decides to take off to take photos of Comlab 1, despite that not being her job, and nearly falls to her death, but luckily, Peter Parker, who had the same idea, catches her. Mary Jane is not impressed by the pretty news lady with the short skirt, but it's all moot as Superman arrives and fires his eye beams at Lois and MJ, and they are transported to a place that is else. No one is more stunned at this than Clark Kent. Chapter 2, When Heroes Clash Peter dons his Spider-Man togs and Clark does the same. For his Superman costume, obviously. He doesn't don his Spider-Man costume. That would be silly. Although in this comic it would be probably plausible that they both dressed as Spider-Man. It's the moment comic fans have been waiting for. Superman and Spider-Man together. Spidey's kind of starstruck, but Superman is all business. He demands to know what Spidey did with the ladies. Spider-Man never takes well to demands and swings in, but misses. Before the fight can progress on a nearby rooftop, Lex Luthor takes off his Superman disguise and gloats to Dr. Octopus. He aims a weapon at Spider-Man and fires. The weapon imbues Spider-Man with red sun radiation and for a time enables him to take on Superman. And take on each other, they do. A confrontation so epic, it shakes the pillars of heaven, Wang. Spider-Man, as he has done so many times before, gets under his opponent's skin so much that Superman almost delivers a killing blow. He pulls back at the last moment, but even the shockwave sends our wall-crawling hero flying. Superman tries to reason with the hot-headed wonder, but Spider-Man unleashes a barrage of punches that do nothing but hurt his hands. The red sun radiation has expired. Superman and Spider-Man then compare notes, and before the chapter is done, have shook hands and are working together to defeat a mutual foe. Chapter 3, The Call to Battle. Using his X-ray vision, Superman follows a trail to the Penn Central Railway Yard. It is, of course, laden with booby traps, but when Superman and Spider-Man finally make their way in, they are greeted by a hologram of Lex and Octavius, who tells them, well, very little, really. Spider-Man tries to access Luther's computer, and it explodes, almost killing our web-headed hero. Superman saves Spider-Man's life and rebuilds the computer from memory. They then locate the source of Octavius and Lex, who were, in fact, hologrammatic projections. The source is Mount Kilimanjaro. They speed over there, and a Maasai tribesman leads them to a secret door in a mountain. Chapter 4, The Doomsday Decision. The mountain is, of course, hollowed out, and is a big old Blofeld-style lure, complete with rocket silo. Superman correctly deduces that Luther is located in the satellite headquarters of the Injustice Gang. He is, and as we cut to that location, Luther places the computer key he stole earlier into his databanks, and with it, he takes complete and total control of Comlap. Superman and Spider-Man choose this moment to arrive. Superman under his own power and Spider-Man flying a NASA space shuttle that he acquired from... somewhere. Superman tries to stop Comlab 1's laser, which is blasting away at Earth, wreaking all kinds of weather havoc. Lex has modified the laser to affect even Superman, and by pure dumb luck, the laser also knocks out Spider-Man's life support. Instead of leaving at least one of them to die, Lex brings both men aboard and explains his dastardly plot. He wants... $10 million or he'll destroy the world. Superman and Spider-Man have heard enough and fight happens. Spidey takes on Luther and Superman Ock. Despite Luther turning off the gravity, Superman still manages to hurl Ock by the arms into the wall and Spider-Man lands a good solid punch on Luther. Superman is suddenly distracted by the monitor. A giant tidal wave is about to destroy the east coast. Lex's 
East Coast. Costa del Lex, Marina del Lex, Otisburg, all about to be destroyed. Superman flies to the rescue as Lex, maniacal with glee, gloats that he never gave a rat's ass about the money. He wants to destroy the world that mocked him. Ock, still struggling with Spider-Man, is appalled. The Earth is his home. He's wanted destroyed. He flails out with his arms, smashing the control panel that gives Lex domination over Comlab. Lex, enraged, attacks Ock. The chain reaction that would destroy the world is interrupted, but the tidal wave will still destroy the Atlantic coast. Not if Superman has anything to say about it. He creates a wall of sound by smashing the sound barrier. Faster, faster, Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3. The wall Superman creates meets the tidal wave and it dissipates harmlessly. On the satellite, Spider-Man punches out Lex. The two heroes shake hands and take their respective villains to jail. Epilogue. Clark taped the whole thing. Peter took photos. Morgan Edge and Jonah Jameson are ecstatic. Clark, Peter, Lois and Mary Jane leave for a double date together. The end. Um, that was epic, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> I'm glad that you stuck around for the whole thing. <laughs> it's a good job it's an audio medium, isn't it? Um, first page is a soliloquy from Stan Lee and then a comment from Carmine Infantino Conway's to believe they're just figureheads yeah. and didn't really do much in the way of editing the actual splash is the cover just but a different angle to emphasise the battle of the century as the, the title of the story it's not as dynamic as the cover itself because it's just like a sideways look at them both yeah. and the background is nowhere near as impressive because it has to leave room for the credits. But it's still fun seeing Superman and Spider on the same page together. I like that splash page. Mm. I like, there's some extra credits that we didn't mention. Lettered by Gaspar Saladino. Coloured by Jerry Serpa. It's produced by Saul Harrison with an assist from Jack Adler. Consulting editing by Roy Thomas, Julie Schwartz, Marv Wolfman and E. Nelson Bridwell. I don't know what they did. <laughs> um, Consult? Yeah, obviously. Um, it follows that like Bronze Age team-up book thing that Superman and the Amazing Spider-Man is the logos. Yeah. And it's Superman and the Amazing Spider-Man, not, not Superman versus. versus the Amazing Spider-Man. Which is nitpickery yes. of the highest order. <laughs> but, hey, <laughs> you know, we did a section called Continuity and Nitpicks. That's true. So I think we're entitled to do some, some nitpicking if, if we so desire. The opening two-page splash is widescreen comics before such a term even existed. Giant robot smashes out of it. Look at the level of yeah. destruction that's got on there. Is this where Man of Steel fans turn around and say, well, people <laughs> must have died? Because they're not wrong, are they? The level of destruction that's gone on there, clearly there must be some injuries. Because he smashed through how many buildings? But you don't think about that. No, you don't, you don't. If you've ever had fun in your life, you don't go, how many people died? (laughs) If you've ever had fun in your life and not asked, well, how many people died, then you're not having the right kind of fun. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, yeah, you don't think about it. It's Superman versus a giant robot. Giant robots are always cool. Which, as an idea, if that doesn't sound cool to you, then you have never had fun in your life. No, Superman versus a giant robot is comics, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's what Superman comics should be. There is no bad in Superman versus a giant robot. Um, this is clearly 
Terry Austin inks. And because he signposts them, literally. Right. There's a signpost for Austin bread, and there's a Terry's bar. Right. Down in the corner. But that rubble, though, on uh, as Superman flies in, so under Superman's leg, is very definitely Austin rubble. Yeah. So that's very definite an Austin background. And all fair play to him, isn't it? I mean, the background detail... On this in this comic is brilliant, mm. as befits a treasury edition. Do you know what? I hope Brian Hitch looks at this and weeps <laughs> when he sees it. Seriously, lovely listener, if you've not got this in treasury format, go and try and scarf up a copy because mm. it's more than worth it. It is quite expensive nowadays. I mean, when I got this, like I said, I don't remember exactly when I picked it up off eBay. But when I got it, I don't think I paid more than 15 quid for it. Right. And even then, I was like, 15 quid? Yeah. And now, in in this condition, and it's not in bad condition for a treasure, is no. it? In this condition, I've seen it going for somewhere in the region of 35 to 50 pound. Right. So, it's probably not going to be cheap, but I do heartily recommend it. Because it is absolutely gorgeous opening splash page, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to agree or disagree, but you never know. In light of the controversy around Man of Steel, we just say property damage and move on, won't we? Collateral. <laughs> the fight, this, this opening fight scene is great fun. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Yeah. Does it? In places. But it's it's Superman fighting a, a giant. giant robot. <laughs> There's no bad here. <laughs> this is what we're trying to say. Um, Luther created this huge robot. Yeah. It trashes the entirety of downtown Metropolis. Something's never mentioned again. Yeah. <laughs> Superman gets back to Metropolis later. It's all been fixed. Well, there's a whole six-issue miniseries just about the collateral. About the collateral damage. There's a whole sequel yeah. to this comic all about the damage that was caused by this robot and how Batman now hates him because of it. <laughs> That's what it's going to be. Oh, um, it should have been that. That's why Spider-Man wants, wants to fight him. Yeah, because of the damage he caused in a place that Spider-Man has never been and doesn't care about. He's got this giant robot, but the giant robot somehow manages to pick a small computer chip. Yeah. I mean, small is a relative term in the 70s. Small computer tips at this point were as big as your head. Right. But still, and the comical way that he removes the roof, like the entire roof just lifts off. Like I said in the synopsis, like it's just a piece of Lego. Yeah. There's no damage to the roof. Slates don't <laughs> fall off. Bricks don't fall anywhere. He just removes the entire roof like a jam jar lid. And then steals the tiny little computer piece that he wants with these massive pincers. And then throws it in his mouth. That he's got it, and, then, yeah, and then chucks it in his mouth. And then... It just gets even more ridiculous as it becomes more and more fun. So Superman drives him into the floor. Like it, I presume this is like a football ground or something. Because there's markings on the floor as he takes off. Yeah. So he drives him right into the floor and then the head shoots off. Superman takes the head out and starts fighting with it. But he doesn't notice Lex Luthor escape on a jetpack. Hmm. Where he's not only laughing maniacally that, you know, Superman superheroing yeah. would pick up. But his jetpack gives off plumes of smoke that is a clear signal that something just flew up into the sky. They'll, those aren't disappearing anytime soon. No. That's not dissipating quickly, <laughs> the amount of smoke that that jetpack is giving off. That is impossible for Superman to not see it 
unless he's trying really, really hard to ignore, to ignore it. it. And it makes no sense, does it? So instead of following the trail, Superman just turns around and goes, Oh, right. Okay. Tons <laughs> um, of property damage. A uh, big giant <laughs> robot that I've just driven into the floor. All that smoke. Don't know where that came from. <laughs> oh, Oh, look at the time. I've got a meeting as Clark Kent. <laughs> Off he goes. <laughs> when you've got a double life, you can't you miss out on meetings. These are true facts. You know, you've got to balance that double life very, very, very carefully. Yeah. And clearly, this was a very, very important meeting <laughs> that doesn't seem to be about anything at all and that Clark Kent didn't need to be at. There's no, he doesn't contribute to the meeting in any way. No. He didn't need to be here. But he just, he just needed to show his face. <laughs> to make sure he gets paid. Yeah. <laughs> Paycheck. Right, I'm off. It's, it's attendance week. <laughs> do you have those? We do. Oh, right. okay. Fair enough. Uh, he's here, he meets Steve Lombard. Steve Lombard was a massive tool. Uh, his pranks were never, never funny. In this case, he's, uh, he's tried the, um, the old water over the, the door staple. These were, as I said, Bronze Age tropes. Steve Lombard tried to trick Clark. Clark would always use his superpowers to get back at him yep. without him knowing it. Steve always ended up with egg all over his face, or in this case, water all over his his head. Didn't they kill him off recently, or was that the Spider-Man guy? Steve Lombard? Yeah. I don't know. I don't read enough recent Superman comics to know. I mean, well, I don't know why they ever brought him back. He's in Man of Steel. Right. Steve Lombard is in Man of Steel, which, which is silly. Um... It does give us one of the funniest lines of the comic. Not the funniest, right. which we'll get to later. But one of the funniest lines when uh, Morgan Ed says, Lombard, get that pail off your head. He doesn't ask why Steve Lombard's got a bucket of water on his head. It's just accepted as normal <laughs> that Steve Lombard walks around with a water bucket on his head. It's just a Lombard thing. <laughs> do they have t-shirts that, that print that up? It's a Lombard they should thing. Do. They should do, yeah. Of course, this does beg a question, doesn't it? Um, everybody's in the room. Yeah. Lombard and Lois are outside of the room. Yeah. Waiting for Clark to go into the room so that the water will fall on Clark's head. Yeah. Right? Why didn't no one inside see it? Exactly, man. So everyone inside this meeting room saw what Steve Lombard was doing and not a single Toby... Health and safety representative, or HR representative, whatever Toby was in the office. Yep. Not a single one of them said, Steve, that contravenes every single workplace regulation. Take it down now, or your sorry ass is fired. Instead they just went, oh, it's, it's, it's another Steve thing. Lombard trick. It's a Lombard <laughs> thing. Yeah. Unless the implication is that he did it before they came in, in which case, how did they get in without the water falling on their heads? Unless the implication is that they were all in on it, poor Clark. <laughs> That's, that's office even, bullying. Even Perry White. Yeah. It is. It's office bullying, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I love applying 2015. It's 2016 now, isn't it? it? I love applying 2016 uh, <laughs> methodology to 1976 comics. <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, you know, Clark's no reason to be at the meeting, so he suddenly gets this brainchild that uh, maybe you should rush back off and investigate what was going on. There are a couple of good gags in the meeting, though. The the Daily Planet headline, Abel confesses in Chaking Murder, which I presume is Terry Austin throwing in a reference to Dusty Abel and Howard Chaking. Right. That's on that newspaper headline, though. So that's, that's quite interesting. And uh, 
Superman then takes off. He finally gets the idea of following the huge trail of destruction yeah. that the robot left in its wake. Of which there is a lot. That's, yeah. The panel where Superman's flying across the city, not only is it a gorgeous piece of artwork, but you can clearly see that there are at least one, two, three, four destroyed buildings that um. nobody was in. They were all... <laughs> evacuated. Just, they were evacuated, yeah. They were all empty. They were all scheduled for demolition anyway. Yeah, yeah. So that's really fortunate. <laughs> On, uh, on Superman's part. But instead of following the rather obvious trail that Luther's jetpack left, because all that billowing smoke was just too obvious for the Man of Steel, Superman backtracks the footprints to the underwater lure. This is brilliantly Bronze Edge. Yeah. So he, he, he dives into the water. Lovely panel of him diving into the water. The fish swimming above him as he dives down into the trench. Were, uh, were the underwater bases. The underwater base is a giant insect that can walk. Now, first of all, where is Lex Luthor getting the money for these things? <laughs> but the second thing is, this is no slight on Ross Andrew, but this is remarkably impractical as a design. It's... it's it, yeah. How the hell are those really spindly legs supporting the weight of that? Well, it's just, um, you're well, lighter it's, in water, aren't you? Well, unless, I was just going to say, unless it's applying the theory that underwater you're lighter. Yeah. So basically these are just kind of guiding the floating. Yeah, yeah. So they're just pushing along the floor, like when you're swimming. Hey, we've just no prize debt. Yeah. In a DC bit of the story. Still impractical. Oh, massively impractical, but we've no prized it for a comic book. Yeah. That works. I like how it's got headlights. Well, <laughs> Well, he's very considerate. Well, he'd have to have headlights this low down, wouldn't he? That's true. He'd have to be able to see where he was going. Although, why he needs to move his underwater base is, is never explained. Well, why is it not just an underwater base? Because you don't want to stay in the one spot, do you? You'll, you'll oh, no, that would make far. it too easy for Superman <laughs> to find you. <laughs> Unlike the jetpack with the billowing smoke yeah. and the massive trail of destruction that you've just left, let's clearly not... pointing in the direction of where you went. Let's not forget the big neon arrow. <laughs> I'm here, Superman. <laughs> oh, dear me. Luther realises that the jig is up. He places his computer chip in a uh, pneumatic tube that sends it to a safe location for later on in the story. Okay? All of this is fine. However, as we've established, yeah. the underwater base moves. Yeah. What's that pneumatic, pneumatic tube connected to? It goes into, you know, like those things in, in supermarkets. They yeah. put the tubes of money in those yeah, pipes. Yeah. They shoot off, don't they? Mm -hmm. To the place where the, the people who are in charge of the money collect them all. Where's it connected to, that pneumatic tube? So I just go straight out of the top and... Well, they just bob around, it... waiting for Luther to come and find it later. It shoots off to somewhere, yeah. It does shoot off to somewhere. Where is that somewhere connected to? It, it, it isn't. It shoots out the water and then flies up and lands in a safe place. <laughs> it's, a, it's not just a pneumatic tube. What you're saying is it's a rocket. No, it uses the speed, the projectile speed <laughs> yes. of the tube to send launch it up to the Injustice Gang satellite headquarters. So it's a <laughs> rocket. Might as well be. Well, that, it's a Bronze Age comic. <laughs> yeah. I would have accepted, though, if you'd have just said, yeah, it's a rocket. I would have gone, oh, okay. Because <laughs> yeah, it's no sillier than anything else in this comic. That that works, yeah. <laughs> now, lest we, you think, lovely listener, we're taking the piss out of this. We're not. <laughs> this is all brilliant. 
This is all absolutely fantastic stuff. Luther blinds Superman so that he can accomplish this with red sun laser beams. That's a good idea. It's pretty cool that Luther would have um, defence mechanisms in place that would take out Superman, so that's really cool. It also means there's a reason this time for Superman not seeing what happens. Yes. As opposed to last time where he just kind of went, oh, I can't be asking all that. I've got a meeting to get to. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, ignoring that big plume of black smoke. It could be anything. It could be. Metropolis, industrial zone. Uh, yeah, 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 I suppose so. Uh, the story concludes, 17 page, 15 pages, sorry. Superman whisks Luther to jail. And this is a great little standalone 15 page Superman adventure. Very similar to the Bronze Age comic books of the time. The story could stop here mm. as an issue of Superman. And the reader has been given a full meal. Yes. You know, a couple of loose ends for future development, but that's what comics did at the time. Kudos for the way Conway structured this. I mean, granted, there is no reason given for all the news crew to suddenly be taking a flight to New York. Hmm. That, to me, should have been mentioned in the meeting. The implication is that's what the meeting's about, isn't it? Yes. That they're all going to this news conference in New York and he's gathering them all together. Maybe he's giving them the flight tickets or telling them the plane times or whatever. But instead it's, let's just bully Clark Kent. Yeah, but that's not actually mentioned. Surely there should have been a line of dialogue of Morganhead saying, right, as you all know, New York conference, we're leaving tonight, stay to Clark, here's all your tickets. Yeah. That would have made sense. But, you know, it's, it's not addressed, so we'll just assume that's what it's for. Um, as it is in the story, they've all just decided to go to New York together. The question I have with this is, why the hell is Jimmy Olsen and Perry White going, given that they contribute nothing to the story from this point? Just for the holiday. They just want to go to New York. Yeah. Could you see Morgan Edge paying for that? That's true. <laughs> He's tighter than J. Jonah Jameson, so I don't I don't know that. What's also worth noting in addition to Jimmy and, and Perry White being there, they don't have a single line of dialogue in 96 pages. No, they don't. There is no reason for them to be there. Other than people may have written and go, where is Jimmy? <laughs> Doing work. <laughs> yeah, there was no reason for him to go to the, the conference, because later on it's Lois taking photos, not Jimmy. Yeah. Jimmy's got no reason to be there. He's useless, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, general or in the story? In this, well, generally, does, as a rule. Uh, but in this particular story, he's, he's quite useless. Uh, there's a full-page recap of Superman's origin, a pause for hero identification, which basically tells us who Superman is and how he came to be. It's a pretty good summation of Superman. Although, truth, justice, and the American way is, for some reason... Ex, ex, uh, substituted with truth, justice, and the Terran way. Right. So this goes back 40 years that they've been trying to change that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's alright, isn't it? It does the job. It tells you yeah. Superman's origin, it establishes who he is and what he does, and, and his power set. Which is pretty much the point of it. Page 16, this suddenly becomes an issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. As with the Superman story that we've uh, that we've just mentioned, Conway structured this to be an almost separate story within, over, within its overall narrative. This two-page splash here isn't quite as dramatic as the Superman opener. It's not. But it is more in keeping with Spider-Man, whereas the Superman opener was a dramatic and exciting opener to the story, a big brawl against giant robots. Spider-Man's intro is more low-key. He sits on the rafters of the Metropolitan Museum, cleaning his camera, when he just happens to spot a robbery. Yeah. Another massive coincidence. This story's full of massive coincidences. It is. I think we should mention that. 
but it wouldn't Straight be comics. But it wouldn't be a 70s Bronze Age superhero comic if it wasn't full of massive coincidences, would it? So, um, Andrew was a meticulous artist, as we've mentioned, so I can only presume that this background here is an authentic representation of the New York Metropolitan Museum circa 1975-ish, if indeed the New York Metropolitan Museum is a real thing. Yes. I presume it is. I hope so. Well, I presume it's not just been made up for this. Like, um, his his university isn't a real university, is it? No. So I presume that the Metro U is is a real place. It's a good splash pad. Mm. Very detailed. Again. I like the little swimming pool thing down at the bottom. But, you know... (laughs) Don't know why a museum would have a swimming pool. Maybe it's just a little pond for ducks to, to swim in. I don't know. Uh, Andrew was a great artist, but like Gil Kane, who we mentioned earlier on, he, he did have some stock poses. The middle shot of Spider-Man on page 18, as of him grabbing two thugs in his arms whilst kicking another, is very familiar to fans of Andrew's Spider-Man run. Right. Like Gil Kane has that shot where he will punch somebody, and the person doing the punching is at the far end of the panel. Yeah. And the guy who's been punched is like that. The nose. Hurled. Shot. Yeah, hurled. His head's right back. You can see up his nose. His arms are flailing everywhere, and he's hurling at you. That's a Gil Kane stock pose. That's a Ross Andrews stock pose. Good, though. Yeah. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. I'm just pointing out that it's, it's quite familiar. Um, whilst the Green Goblin was dead at this point. This treasury featuring Dr. Octopus as the main villain against Superman's opposite number of Lex Luthor just adds to my feeling that Dr. Octopus is the number one Spider-Man villain, not the Green Goblin. Okay. Do you not have an opinion on that? Not really. You know, I think Doc Ock's Spider-Man's primary protagonist. Okay. I don't think the Green Goblin really earns that. All the, all the Green Goblin's done really is kill his girlfriend and find out who he is. Which is severe. That doesn't make you a... (laughs) I I grant you that that's severe. Marrying your aunt is worse than killing your girlfriend. Well, and he shagged Gwen Stacy as well. In that story that we never mention. In that story that never happened. I'm going to side on the the Green Goblin. (laughs) (laughs) Based on what I just said, Green Goblin wins. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Octopus never shagged Gwen Stacy. He did shag Aunt May. That's... Ooh, that did put me back on the fence. Dear me, and now I'm, I'm just grossed out now. When Stacy didn't own a nuclear silo <laughs> on an island. island, so so you see, you see what I'm saying. <laughs> but she did nail him without taking her headband off. Oh, so that God. scales go up again. Yeah, we are taking the piss out of things past. Why exactly was Doctor Octopus stealing trinkets from the Metropolitan Museum? Because he needed them. Because he needed to be brought into the storyline in a coincidental manner. Yeah. And we needed to explain. This one, this story, is far more of a massive coincidence than the um, the Superman one is. Lex Luthor does that kind of stuff all the time. Yes. So that fits in quite well. This is just a massive coincidence to bring Dr. Octopus into the story and explain who he is mm. for people who may not have read Spider-Man comics. Yeah. It works. You know, I'm not I'm not dissing on it, but it's, it's a little bit more motivation than may have may have been good. And also, Lex Luthor having flying robots and stuff is part of his MO. It's implausible, mm. but it's a, it's a recognised trait. Where the hell does Dr. Octopus get a flying octopus spaceship from? Uh... And look at it! How does that fly? It's like a UFO with a big circle on it and lots of arms. Do you know what it looks like? It looks more like Brainiac's ship. It does. 
then it looks like he, Dr. Octopus. He should have been walking around on it. Yeah, it's... I have no idea where that came from. As far as I remember, that is never in a Spider-Man comic ever again. And arguably hasn't been in a Spider-Man comic now. Yeah, yeah. This isn't actually considered... A, isn't this considered an out-of-continuity tale? Of course it is. Although, doesn't Kurt Busiek reference it in JLA Avengers? You know when you see all the different yeah. shards of world? Didn't we point out there is a panel showing something from this I forget what it is now but I'm sure it's in the implying that it is in continuity but isn't that now out of continuity oh, it's, it's not out of Marvel continuity because Marvel don't reboot their continuity ah, of apart from Spider-Man whose continuity they've rebooted yeah <laughs> but this was before that and it was before they got married so this still <laughs> happened happened in my head okay anyway because it, it's glorious so. uh, the police shoot at Spider-Man here without any real provocation because at this time he was wanted in connection to the death of Doctor uh, Norman Osborn. Sorry, right? Um, and this this really does set up the difference between the Superman and the Spider-Man stories, doesn't it? Mm. The Superman is a standalone tale. Lex Luthor's done something nefarious. Superman stops him. The Peter Parker Spider-Man story is very much enmeshed in what is going on in the Spider-Man books at the time. Yes, because that is it doesn't actually come out and say it. But if you're reading Spider-Man at the moment, you know why the police are shooting at him. Yeah, because he's still wanted for Spider-Man's more of a of a soap opera though yeah Spider-Man's more of a continuing narrative soap opera you're absolutely right Spider-Man is Emmerdale Farm Superman <laughs> is what's a, a generic done in one television show at the minute at this time yeah. at this time in, in the comics uh, Peter heads over to the Daily Bugle Jonah just orders Peter's pictures on the front page without even looking at them yeah so the primary question here is whose fault is this well you can't look at the photos when you're on a tight schedule it, but surely that's at the very least Robbie Robertson's job surely oh, Robert he's... Robertson would have shown up and gone um, well he just says doesn't he if I'd been here I might have helped yeah. where were you why were you not doing your job I mean, this, break. Uh, I suppose so yeah I mean it's it's Jonah's problem as he, he orders no writer to create a front page with any kind of headline or story he just tells the printer run the best of these photos on the front page Yeah. he doesn't have somebody run up a headline he doesn't have someone mock up a Spider-Man sucks story, which is what he would normally <laughs> Does do. Does he not have many of those written? He has a folder. <laughs> he just ha- he's just pulled a stock story yeah. out that he wrote one night when he was bored. He said, run this one, doesn't matter. I've kept it deliberately vague. <laughs> it's just Spider-Man sucks. This wouldn't have happened in the digital age. It would not have happened in the digital age, no. I mean, it's a or funny if, bit. Yeah, or if Peter had have developed his photos before going straight to the boss. Well, to be fair... Peter has frequently done this. He's ran in with a hot news story. He said, Jonah, I've got you some photos. Here's the film. Right. And Jonah normally says something along the lines of, the cost of developing it's coming out of your salary. Go and sort this out. So to be fair, Peter's done this before. So this is clearly um, J. Jonah Jameson's fault. Um, but then what happens next? I mean, it's not very credible, but it's Jonah, Jonah Jameson's fault. He then launches himself across the room to throttle Peter. And Jonah, Robbie, has to forcibly pull Jonah off him. I mean, you thought Peter, uh, sorry, Clark's workplace bullying was bad. Yeah. At least Clark's not getting set upon by the boss. It's all right for the boss to do, though, isn't it? Is it? Is it really? It's, it's just considered discipline. <laughs> slap around from the bosses. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. Slap around from the bosses. Well deserved. Yeah. Well, right. well deserved. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, the Peter Park scene, as I say, is much more organic than the Clark Kent scene. Clark adds nothing to the plot. 
does it? No. Whereas this is a little, at least a fun little character beat. Yeah. Telling us who these people are and, and what they're up to, so all, all that's kind of good. And Murray Jane just hangs around the Daily Bugle, which she did a lot right, okay. in this time period. She just hung around the Daily Bugle. Apparently, he, Peter has told her to meet him there. Yeah. So that makes a little bit more sense. But there were times where she was just there to the point where you're like, do you actually work there? Is it this easy to walk into a newspaper <laughs> office and just hang around by the editor-in-chief's office? It was the 70s. It was the 70s, so apparently it was much easier. Uh, page 27, though, is a much better example of, um, of Spider-Man screwing up. Although I do like that he and Murray Jane were going watching Gone with the Wind, a film from 1952. Right, okay. Is it getting re-released? I, pres- I presume it's playing in some Greenwich Village theatre somewhere yeah. that show old flicks. Because in 1976, what would have been more contemporary? Jaws. Right, okay. Jaws would have been a more contemporary film for him to go see, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would have been better, actually. Because Jaws is just as big a classic as Gone with the Wind, although they, they may not have known that at this point. Um, back on page 22, Spider-Man ran out of webbing. In a nice touch, he hasn't been home. So he leaps onto the blimp and misses he fires off his web shooters but he's still got no webbing I really like that scene yeah because it's it's Conway actually paying attention and Spidey's legitimately forgot something which happens in real life doesn't it mm. I mean, just the other day I went into town and I'd forgot something and I had to come back for it right so it happens all the time so I liked that I thought that was really good um, even though Spidey knows he's out of webbing though so it, it's great I really like it Be- brilliantly detailed art on that, on that scene as well. But the giant blimp was tissue paper. He says it's like tissue paper. Oh, okay, so it's like tissue paper. It's got a very thin frame yeah. that supports that giant octopus thing. That does flying the, octopus thing. How does the octopus thing support the... Is the octopus thing doing the flying? That's actually a good point. Mm. That makes more sense. Hey, I'll go with that That no prize explanation. And Spidey puts the spider tracker on, on Dr. Octopus? Well, I call shenanigans on that. Right. If we, see, it clearly says on page 29, I planted a spider tracer on you earlier. And it gives us a flashback panel to him doing that very... Well, he's not doing that thing, it just drops on him. Yeah. Spider-Man doesn't place that anywhere. Um, but it's nowhere near his shoulder... It's kind of more falling into his crotchal area. Yeah. Which he would have probably noticed had he gone to take a leak. But if you go back and look, that that's happen. not the. Yeah. That doesn't happen. So I'm calling shenanigans on that. It's a good ending, though. Spider-Man brings the blimp down in, in the New York Reservoir or whatever it is. So it, it's got a symmetry with the, the Superman story, hasn't it? Both of them end in water. Yeah. And both of them end up saving the respective villains from drowning. So that's quite that's quite a nice touch, and he just leaves him for the police. Uh, Conway, as both the Spider-Man and Superman stories mirror each other really well, mm. so that's clever. Uh, they both open with an action beat, both show character limitations and powers, both introduce the cast and the villain, and then both split the action up to introduce the secret identity. Yeah. So all that's really clever. Both stories culminate in the ocean, both villains are frog-marched to jail. This isn't quite as effective as a standalone adventure as the Superman one is. This is very much setting up what's coming up next, and the Superman story is as well, but the Superman story works better as a slice of 15-page just comic book. Yeah. Whereas this is very much a prelude to what is coming up soon. Um, and a lot of that is because Spider-Man is so enmeshed in its subplot and its characterization, as we've mentioned, that a standalone adventure like this doesn't really suit the character as well as it does for Superman. 
Um, but Conway does allow for some continuity. He mentions the Spider-Mobile. Mm. He's, he's mentioned that as well. But it's still a very good introduction to who the character is. And then Spider-Man also gets a page to introduce his origins and such on page 31, which focuses more on his costume than his actual origin. Yeah. Which, which I thought was a tad odd. But, you know. Uh, Austin gives away that he inks this because there's a, he signs it. Another, on another, another Austin billboard, yeah. It's Austin Watch. Uh, but Peter Parker's face is very definitely John Romita. Yeah. So that's uh, that's quite good. Andrew's body language in the prologue three, when Lex Luthor walks into jail, is really masterful. Luthor is cocky, arrogant, even in shackles. And there's no doubt in the reader's mind that even in jail and manacled, he's totally in charge. Yeah. I really like that as well. Docker Octopus is allowed to keep his arms on in jail. Are they not? Oh, they're not grafted onto his body, are they? Yeah, I think they are at this point. Right, so they okay. can't take them off, that's true. But why can't you just rip this jail cell to tissue paper then? Because they've deactivated them? It's, it says it's a, f- a federal maximum ex-security penitentiary number one, the most escape-proof prison in the world, but it's still made a brick. Well, yeah. Luthor does have that thing that activates his arms. Oh, right, okay. So they must be deactivated. But how can they do that? His, his arms are mentally activated if they're grafted to it. Didn't like they take them off the harness in they, later stories there is there, there's some conflict here I'm trying to remember the, the chronology of it initially they could remove them yeah but then when it became grafted onto him it was a mental thing so he could control them mentally and he even got to the point where when they were removed he could still control his yeah. arms mentally and then like you said they got grafted onto his body so they couldn't be removed so I just shut them off I remember him still having the harness grafted onto him, but they, like, unscrewed the arms off. Right. Okay. See, I always... That's possible, because maybe it's just the, the chest piece... Yeah. ...that is, uh, that's grafted to his... Yeah, all right, okay, we'll go with that. We'll accept it, because without it, we kind of don't really have this, this chapter of the story, do we? One of the things I really liked about this, which I know a lot of people will not like about it, but even at 96 pages, Conway doesn't bother with any of that malarkey about how Superman and Spider-Man, or even Ock and Luther, could know each other. Yeah. There's none of that. This works fine in something like Avengers vs. JLA. But let's be honest, it's irrelevant here. Yes, it is. And as such, I'm glad Conway just took the approach of they know each other, deal with it. Which I always prefer. I can't be bothered with none of that. Well, you live on an alternate <laughs> earth, and we never met because this... How could we know why they've never met? They're two different companies. <laughs> Move on. Yeah. I, I quite like how in this scene uh, Doc Octopus comes off as a fanboy. Ah, you're Lex Luthor. Uh, who, who are you again? Uh? <laughs> well, uh, Superman and Spider-Man do as well, don't they? Yeah. Superman's like a massive fanboy for... So, Spider-Man, sorry, is a massive fanboy for Superman. Yeah. And Superman's like, yeah, I've kind of heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> you're an embarrassment to superheroes. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're wanted for murder. <laughs> Nobody likes you because of that full face mask thing. And you kind of smell. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Soup. You're kind of a dick. <laughs> that would have been a much funnier conversation. Um, Luther is the one that suggests swapping adversaries, which Doctor Octopus agrees to quite quickly. Even though Luther seems to get the better of this deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Doctor Octopus. <laughs> you go up against Superman, and I'll take on Spider-Man for you. No, no, don't thank me. <laughs> And Dr. Octopus is like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And you just think, a little bit later, he's sat on the bog taking a dump and he goes, wait a minute, I've not got 
the good end of the deal, yeah? It's just this boy mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you say, Mr. Luthor, (laughs) tap this, please. It's for my uh, sister. (laughs) And he calls Mr. Luthor. (laughs) (laughs) Otto Octavius is Otis. (laughs) And he finally got his really long arms. Yeah. It all a long, a long arm, arm. Mister, Mister Luther. Oh, dear me. Um, you know, there's there's a good dynamic to be had. Spidey versus Ock is superhero scientist versus mad scientist. So Lex Luthor is a superhero scientist, a supervillain scientist. Yeah. So Spider-Man and Lex Luthor kind of works. I can't help but think Superman will just wrap those arms around him in 0.5 of a second, and the, yeah. the fight will be over. Unless Dr. Octopus uses his science knowledge. Could be. Could be to, to, to somehow beguile Superman. Yeah. We don't really get to see it, do we? No. They don't really have much of a, of a, a mano or mano. Uh, Luther escapes with his false epidermis on his arm that hides some micro tools. That was referenced on an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. One of that show's most obscure, but by me anyway, <laughs> welcome pop culture references. Remember yeah. season six where you have Jonathan and Andrew and Warren? The, yeah, the geeky trio, the nemesis, the the guys who are basically the 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 forerunners for Big Bang Theory. Yeah, which is what they are, isn't it? Yeah, essentially, uh, they reference that when trying to escape from somewhere. We should have yeah. a false epidermis like Lex Luthor had. I thought that was genius because it's one of those gags that you're like, <laughs> and everyone else is like, whoosh, straight <laughs> over their head. But but I liked it. Uh, a lot so it's an astonishing coincidence that Luther should have a gadget that frees Octavius but like you say it brings his arms back online so the story's full of everything. possibly he's, he's, he's like the Batman yeah he's got something in his utility belt for everything he's got something in his false epidermis in his false epidermis for every single occasion so that's absolutely perfect there is something hysterical about Luther riding Dr. Octopus out of jail <laughs> giddy up giddy up it's a, it's a dominance thing. It is, because uh, where he's got him positioned is quite clearly... Not just the long arm. Not just the long arm, Mr. Luthor. Um, the origin page for Luthor and Ock is kind of lacking. Yeah. In comparison to the Superman and Spider-Man one, but you know, the, the villains, that's all you really need to know. Uh, after these three prologues, we're at the 36-page mark. The story finally begins. Yeah. And you can't really have it without all of that. No. You, you do You do need all oh, of that. We just had two Bronze Age issues before the, the story even... Oh, but glorious Bronze Age issues they were too, yeah. weren't they? They were, they were fantastic. Um, Clark, in uh, in this chapter... Oh, chapter one's a, a duel of titans, which I, I mentioned in, the, uh, in the, the synopsis that I did. Clark thinks New York is filthy. Right. So come to my town and diss on it. Yeah. Cheers, yeah. Superman. And Lois thinks Clark is dull. <laughs> And thus we're setting up the relationship right now. Andrew does a good job with the World News Conference, which is as good a reason as any for everyone to be together. His fashions are really quite neat as well. I'm really digging on these 70s fashions that he's got going on here. Nobody looks too 70s. Yeah. Um, Peter's white jeans and stacked heel boots are certainly noteworthy. It's like he knew he was going to be stood next to Clark Kent, who's taller than him. So yeah, he's, yeah. he's he's rocking the the stack heeled boots. I don't know what what he's wearing. Is that a, his a, jumper with a, the the a, yellow abandoned space invader? A neck with space invaders yeah. on it. <laughs> it does look like a, a turtle neck with space invaders on it. I mean, he looks he looks pretty sharp. Pretty fly. In the, it's pretty fly for a white guy. Um, Lois is is quite fetching mm. in her exceptionally short 
tartan skirt. Mary Jane is is also looking quite good. She's she's got a dark green leather jacket, white turtleneck, jeans, and cowboy boots. Would they be cowgirl boots? Probably. Lois, it's like she knew she was going to be standing next like to Lois. Mary Jane looks quite quite class, mm-hmm. as befits a fashion model. Yeah. And before Todd McFarlane had his hands on her, well, she suddenly forgot <laughs> that she knew how to dress. Uh, Peter standing up to Jonah is long overdue. One wonders why Conway never put this scene in an actual Spider-Man comic. Yeah. Because he basically tears a strip off him, doesn't he? And Peter says, I've had enough of this. You don't pay me enough. I'm not on staff. I'm freelance. I can go wherever the hell I like. And it's just a shame he decided to do it in that jumper. <laughs> You're not letting that jumper go, are you? I don't think that jumper's as bad as it could have if been. If I was his boss and he was having a go at me like that, I couldn't <laughs> take him seriously. I am not taking seriously threats from a man wearing a black purple net with space invaders <laughs> on it and white <laughs> jeans. And you're not fooling anyone, Parker. We all know you're only five foot five. Those boots, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it's a nice contrast to Clark just basically taking Morgan Edge, say, we're, we're, no, we're not using you, we're going to use Walter Cronkite, and blowing smoke in his face. See, I thought he had he had a plan up his sleeve, but no, he just takes it on the chip. Yeah, he just he just accepts it, and he goes, yeah, OK. Yeah. That's quite weak for Clark, Kent, that. We've got a huge expository scene where Clark explains what Comlab 1 is. Right, yeah. For purposes of plot. <laughs> but that's okay, because surely Lois would have known this if they're coming here. Yeah. Although, you know, the Comlab 1 isn't the reason for being here, is it? Mm. So maybe that's not Lois's beat. Lois is the city beat. Yeah, yeah. And Clark is now WGBS. He doesn't do the city beat anymore. So that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Peter Parker actually says... To Lois Lane, when she falls, easy miss. I've got you. I've got you. That she doesn't follow that up with you've got me, who's got you, is a crushing disappointment (laughs) to me. But it's there in this comic. Yeah. And then you sit back and you think about it, and you go, the plot of this comic is actually quite familiar, Mm. if you've seen Superman the movie. The destroying of the Atlantic coast. I mean, obviously, in the movie, Lex is doing it so he can create his own. Atlantic yeah. Coast but it's all the and there's a lot of gags in this there's another one in a minute that were ripped off for Superman right. and you sat there going did Tom Mankovic read this comic do you think <laughs> before writing Superman the movie do you not notice that I, I thought there was a lot of similarities not enough to include him, accuse him of plagiarism yeah but there's enough in it to make you go hmm as they used to say on Brainiac hmm so anyway, moving on. Uh, Peter and Lois, hey, <laughs> totally make a connection. Murray Jane, her jealousy is beautifully played. Although Lois is like, put the tie, put the claws in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think Peter's a little bit young for me. Peter says he's almost a college graduate, which puts him roughly at twenty-three years of age in this story. What's Lois? Twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Yeah. So it's not that big of a difference. Maybe she just likes older men. And just think, younger men. Well, Clark's not much older than her. But just think how much fun a Peter Parker, Lois Lane romance would have been. (laughs) Oh, the fanfic just writes itself. And Clark being the cuckold he apparently is, would have just taken it. He would have just taken it. But Superman would have made the moves on Murray Jane. That's true. Yeah, real man of steel. Woman of Kleenex. Conway does a really good job with the Superman reveal at this point. It is really, really cool. We haven't seen Clark for a few pages. Lois has just been in trouble. Mm. 
and Superman is expected to be at this conference. I don't, I don't know how Clark was going to pull that off, but I'm sure it would have involved him moving really, really fast. Really yeah, I'm sure it would have involved him doing that. So all that's perfectly okay. So when Superman swoops in, we've no reason to not believe he's not the real deal. Yeah. And then when he, he fires his heat vision or laser beams or whatever it is at Murray Jane and Lois Lane... It's, it's quite a surprise when we pull back and Clark is stood there going, wait a minute, what just happened? Mm. The only problem I have with this scene, it's it's a massive coincidence that they take Mary Jane with them. Yeah. She's not even part of the plot, is she? Nope. The, the plot, Lex Luthor has not the plot of the story. Yeah. So why did you not just shoot at Lois? Maybe two eyes maybe. Uh, I don't know anyway, maybe it was a wide dispersal beam or oh, whatever it's one of the many disadvantages of Lex Luthor's lazy eye <laughs> which he doesn't like to talk about <laughs> and let's just marvel again at Lois's skirt um, when she fell earlier on and Peter caught her uh, he wasn't underneath her Oh, that's a shame. It, yeah, because he, he could have uh, he could have been. Oh, she's presumably wearing tights. Yeah. Another precursor to Superman the movie, Clark, not Clark. Peter runs to the phone booth, and it's a phone stall. Yeah. Which is in Superman the movie. Clark looks at him and goes, huh, and then goes and gets changed in the revolving door, doesn't he? Yeah. So there you go. Another one. Not saying Tom Mankiewicz <laughs> read this comic before he wrote Superman the movie. I'm just saying it's possible, given that it will have been on the stands at that point, won't it? Two-page spread on page 46 and 47, where Superman and Spider-Man actually meet each other, is magnificent. Yeah. Absolutely no fault in it. You've got, fall out, it's Superman! <laughs> like, big fanboy moment from Spider-Man. And Superman's all, I've heard reports about you. And you're like, oh, okay, it's like that, is it? Mm. We're not friends. Ooh, that face is very Neil adams -y. The Superman one. Yeah. yeah, it is, isn't it? Neil Adams, especially with Dick Giordano inking it. The, the whole Superman, that whole Superman is very Neil adams -y. Yeah. It's it's glorious. Absolutely brilliant. Two-page splash in a Treasury edition. I'm mm. going to say it again. Read it and weep, Brian Hitch, with your widescreen action. Oh, you don't think Brian Hitch could pull this off? I think Brian Hitch could totally pull this off. Right. What I'm saying is when everyone's lauding Brian Hitch for his widescreen comics, he this wasn't the first, first to do it. Yeah. But I do. Th I think Brian Hitch could totally nail that. I think he'd do an excellent job with it. It's certainly far more impactful than a big seven-page shot of the freaking back, Kev. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly it's more e epoch-making, it's more iconic, it's just better. Mm. Sorry, Jim Lee. Go and draw some Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit pithy when I said I do apologise. I'm nothing against Jim Lee. Uh, the Ursat Superman is revealed to be, of course, Lex Luthor. No explanation is given for how he pulled this off. Hey. How he flew, how he fired beams out of his eyes, none of that's explained. He's, he's hover boots, that's how he flew. Yeah, okay. How'd he do the eye beams? He has a gadget in his... In his eyes? Yeah. <laughs> that corrects his lazy eye. <laughs> that's what it's for. But it also is a beam that transfers people to other places. Yeah. It's, ah, it's just okay. a mere side effect, but he uses it to his advantage. He's he found it by accident. Yeah. And he went, oh, okay. Well, this will come in useful one day. Should Superman ever meet Spider-Man? 
<laughs> all right, okay, fair enough. I mean, it's, it's Lex Luthor in a 1970s comic book. That's really all the explanation you need. Yeah, if you're asking why you're not enjoying this comic... No, well, I was only nitpicking it a little bit because I was pulling it to bits for, for purposes of, of entertainment, but it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. I do love it. I do love that they just don't explain stuff like that. <laughs> it's a six-issue comic nowadays. I don't explain how all that works, and here it's just tossed off. <laughs> Like, nobody cares. Um, Luther imbues Spidey with a burst of red sun radiation, meaning that the wall crawler can go toe-to-toe with the Man of Steel. Um, it's a great scene, largely because Conway nails Spider-Man's character. He is hot-headed. Yeah. And he is stubborn. And he does frequently jump in without reviewing all the facts. And Even Superman, when Superman says, wait, stop. Yeah. and But that's the thing. Superman kind of disses him a little bit. Yeah. So Spider-Man's hackles are up. But you're right, he does try to talk to him. Exactly what numerous heroes have done before when brought into conflict with Spider-Man. And he didn't listen to them either. Yeah. I'm quite... I was a bit concerned that his webbing just snaps. Yeah. Because that never happens. But is that... Is the implication that because he's now super strong that he's pulled at the webbing enough that it snapped? Or the force of kicking Superman? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it could be. It could be many things. It doesn't really matter. He does kick Superman across the... the the length of New York City still doesn't cause as much property damage as Luther's robot. No. A couple of broken walls here and there. <laughs> Nothing that can't be fixed by um, damage control. Yeah. Who, who do exist in, in the Marvel Universe. Uh, what's perfectly in keeping with Spider-Man's character as well is he gets under Superman's skin mm. just by constantly barraging him with quips, puns, smart-ass comments. Isn't that what Spider-Man does? Yes. Long before any R-rated movie. Long before any R-rated movie. Deadpool. Ooh, and I think the next Spider-Man film is going to be R-rated. I would. That's exactly I, I what think. We yeah, need. That's. I think the lesson that we've learned from Deadpool is everything now needs to be R-rated. Yeah. And the fact that loads of other R-rated superhero movies like The Crow and Judge Dredd Blade. and Blade. Oh well, Blade did well or did well enough. Didn't do quite as well as say the Avengers. Yeah. So, it's just, but our race, that's what we need now. Definitely. Because let's forget that comics are supposed to be for children as well. That's why we need to take our kids to see our rated superhero That's films. exactly it. Yeah, if only there was some kind of rating to let us know that this one wasn't suitable for children. Yeah. It's weird how that works. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love that bit where, where Superman goes to just punch his block off. Because mm. <laughs> he's so annoyed with him. Because that's what Spider-Man does. And then he needs to stop himself at the last second. Yeah, well, and the, the shockwave sends Spider-Man across New York. Spider-Man's John McClane. Yeah. When um, when Holly says, John's still alive, and the guard, you know, and he's like, nobody but John <laughs> could piss somebody off that much. That's Spider-Man. However, Spider-Man's face is now just collapsed on itself. <laughs> yeah, he's going to look like arse face when he takes his mask off. Sorry, Root Jr. This <laughs> is the way to go, isn't it? Andrew paces this wonderfully. Yeah. He paces this fight scene absolutely magnificently. Uh, the, the use of splash pages is really effective, especially in a treasury edition like this. And he knows exactly where to place those double page spreads for maximum impact. Yeah. Normally when somebody's just got punched. Yes. Which is, is always the best way to do it. And Conway also knows where to play up the humour. Spider-Man's powers just suddenly whirring off and punching Superman whilst he just stands there is played for laughs. Although the line, how did you get so hard so suddenly, is the most unintentionally funny line in the book. Yeah. You laughed out loud at that and then you told your mum and your mum was like, that line is in the comic? 
Yep. You have gotten harder, says Spider-Man. And, and that's why Mary Jane will never go for Peter Parker. <laughs> and that's what Lois likes about uh, Lois, Superman. Yeah, yeah. That he gets hard so very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the tone of the show has gone considerably. Just plummets. No. I, I think we need to take a nice breather and uh, step back and reevaluate our lives. Well, this this scene here is in Deadpool. Is it? Yeah, where he punches the crap and it busts his wrists right. and his hands. I mean, in Deadpool, he, he breaks every bone in his hands right. when he punches Colossus. But this scene is in Deadpool. Yeah. So this comic has been massively influential. It has. I'm not saying the writers of Deadpool <laughs> read this comic. Just saying they could have done. It's that's, that's all. Books being there for many years. It has, yeah. That's all I'm saying, lovely listener. Chapter 3 is the call to battle. Spider-Man um, is being pulled through the air by Superman. On web skis. On web skis. <laughs> it makes no sense in terms of physics. But Silver Surfer? But yeah, but at least the Silver Surfer's doing it under his own power. If Superman's full of pulling Spider-Man behind him, to get him to stay like that, he's whipping him at some speed, isn't he? I suppose. They've got a lot of ground to cover and a short time to get there. They have... <laughs> So this is this is the bandit and um, whatever Jerry Reed's character was, yeah. Snowman or Snowball or whatever he was. Rubber Duck. Excellent, good. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it makes no sense, but it's good. Yeah, it's very fun to actually actually see it in case. But it, it you know, it's you know, I mean, you've got to wonder as well what made Spider-Man fashion skis. Yeah. What what was in his? Does, he, does Superman now look at Spider-Man and go, "How old are you"? <laughs> And then the Peter and Spider-Man says, too young for Lois, apparently. You couldn't have possibly murdered a man with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Um, I do love this as well. They find the, the track down the old Penn Central Railroad start, uh, yard, and Spider-Man sneaks in all stealthy-like. Yeah. And creeps and sneaks and, and does all that stuff that Spider-Man does. Superman just smashes through the front door. Because sometimes the direct approach is the best approach. Is is the best approach? Yeah. Uh, when Lex shows Spider-Man where Lois and Mary Jane are held captive, they're both manacled together. Uh, it really looks like they're having an argument. Probably. Doesn't it look like Mary Jane saying, "And stay away from my man"? Doesn't it? See, I'm not saying that women always argue with each other, but but two women in a confined <laughs> a com- confined environment for a long time and. Apparently that's what happens. Apparently what According to... I'm not saying that applies for all or most women. Just, but just in 70s just comic books. Mary Jane's not let that go, has she? No. That uh, Lois and Peter were a little bit cosy. See, you know what, you know what that means? What? It means she's, she's jealous. She is. Insecure and not comfortable. Right. I'm glad you're here to, to, to add these psychological uh, elements to the show. Now, I'm not saying that psychology is the easiest <laughs> A-level. <laughs> but... It's... Lex Luthor's plan when he explains it is full of holes oh yeah you know whilst kidnapping Lois from the news conference that's fine yeah okay he's trying to get Superman here that, that's okay it's the easiest way to get at Superman through Lois Lane she is yeah. after all Superman's girlfriend that's, yes that's, she had a comic named Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane mm-hmm. so okay that's fair enough yeah well Jimmy Olsen also had ones called uh, Superman's best pal that's true. But Superman wants everyone to forget that. <laughs> and Jimmy's not in this comic, <laughs> yeah. so it doesn't really matter. Um, but, you know, the kidnapping of Mary Jane was just a coincidence. Mm. But it 
it's worked out really well for them to have just happened to have kidnapped a girl who means something to Spider-Man, and that she just happened to be stood next to Lois Lane. Yeah. At a news conference that she just happened to be at, because, newsflash, Murray Jane isn't any kind of reporter or anything. Yeah. I mean, yes, she's there as Peter's date, but it's a massive coincidence. It is a coinky-dink. Isn't it? They don't even need Murray Jane. If, if he didn't have got Murray Jane, Spider-Man would have just said, all right, Superman, you handle this. No, he wouldn't. Spider-Man would have got involved anywhere. You know what he's like. And he's just had that connection with Lois Lane. Yeah. He's just seen her disappear in front of his eyes right. at the hands of Superman. Spider-Man would have got involved anywhere. Murray Jane's completely irrelevant to actually being in it. Yeah. Isn't she? Which is a shame, because I love Murray Jane, but there's no reason for her to be in this comic. How many lines of dialogue has she had since being kidnapped? None. How many does she have from being kidnapped? I'm pretty sure the answer to that is still none. So, kidnapping Murray Jane, there's no reason for it. At all. And it gives away something about Spider-Man later on in the issue. Yeah. Which we'll we'll talk about when we get there. Uh, when Superman blows Spider-Man, which is a line I never thought I'd say, away <laughs> from the exploding computer with his super breath... Nice Spider-Man, yeah, thank you. Spider-Man retorts with, "What happened? Is that some seventies pop culture reference that just flew straight over my head?" What happened? Yeah, what? W H A happened? H O P P E N E D. Normally, when something like that is the and deliberately spelt wrong, it's normally a Saturday Night Live reference, right? Which is big in New York. I've never seen so much as a single episode of Saturday Night Live, right? So. I'm, that one flew right over my head. Yeah. He does. He also references somebody called Henny Youngman. I don't know who that is either. I could have Googled it, but I couldn't be asked. I did enough research for this show <laughs> at the beginning. Did you know? It's just enough, isn't it? Um, speaking of the exploding computer, Lex wants Superman, and by extension Spider-Man, to find him. Mm. Why blow the computer up? To give them a bit of a challenge? From a common Can't sense it standpoint, it makes no sense. It's visually interesting, yeah. and you're right, it, it makes it more more visually interesting, like I say, and it makes it more of a challenge, makes them think they're having to work harder, when in fact what they're doing is giving Lex exactly what he wants. Yeah. But from a common sense standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. You know, well, well, having him rebuild the computer from memory is fun. Typically Superman of this era. And he gets to save Spider-Man. I do like that they try and play that both of them are smart. Spider-Man instantly knows that the longitude and latitude of Africa. Would you yeah. know that? No. No, me neither. I was Spider-Man, know it. But Superman goes one better <laughs> because he's Superman. Does he, he, knows, have... he knows the location. Does he still have his super intelligence at this point? Yes, he's still right. got super intelligence at this point. So he's like, ah, to be specific, Spider-Man, <laughs> that's Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. <laughs> and nice then he smiled nice, and went, bing. Nice try, kid, but I'm better. <laughs> that is what it is. It is it's Superman putting Spider-Man in his place. The scene where Spider-Man, sorry, Superman tells Spider-Man to stand back. I'll deal with this before patronizingly <laughs> trying to communicate with the Maasai tribe only to have the guy speak perfect English is genuinely funny it's, yeah. that was genuinely hysterical especially when the guy says oh yeah you're Superman I went to university in London I know all about you and Superman's like oh okay <laughs> hello fellow tribesmen we come seeking the white devil he <laughs> raves your lands <laughs> And then the guy goes, yeah, what are you on about, dude? I can speak English. <laughs> Soup Spider-Man should have took the piss out of him, though. Yeah. Spider-Man would have took the piss out of him, though. Yeah. Well, all right, we'll let it go. 
But it was Superman's it was... a Superman's a secret a secret racist. <laughs> but no, I liked it. I thought it was funny from the standpoint of all the way through Superman's been ah, it's the longest latitude of, of uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, and I know this and I know that, and then this just <laughs> knocks him on his ass. Oh, okay. <laughs> funny, funny scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, showing Superman does occasionally make mistakes, which which I like. I like that very much. Uh, Superman's heat vision when they fight with the Maasai tribe man at the end of the chapter, who is, is under the thrall of Lex Luthor, can apparently make Spider-Man's webbing as hard as steel. Which is woolly comic book science. Yeah. Even for a comic book. But alright, we'll go with it. I don't, <laughs> we don't know the exact composition of Spider-Man's webbing. That's true. We don't know exactly how Superman's heat vision works. So who are right. we to argue? Who are we to argue with this this magnificent comic book? <laughs> if they say that Superman's heat vision makes Spider-Man's webs hard, then I, we can't argue with that, can we? we? We've got no we've got no recourse to argue about. How it. did he get hard so fast? Superman's heat vision. Yeah, evidently. A lot of running around in that chapter. Mm. That was the only chapter that felt like it could have done with tightening up. Yeah. In terms of the pacing, it did feel like a bit of what's, isn't it? Uh, the opening of Chapter 4 demonstrates a key difference between DC and Marvel at this time. Spider-Man says that Lex has seen too many James Bond movies. And Superman says Lex isn't a man you joke about. He's deadly serious. Marvel always had this neat line in self-mocking humour that DC kind of lacked in the Bronze and Silver Age. Maybe if Superman had just took the piss out of Lex a lot more, <laughs> he wouldn't have been such a dullard. Yeah. But that's Spider-Man shtick, isn't it? To, to constantly take the don't piss. don't want everyone to be the same. We do not want everyone to be the same. The Ofsted of comic companies. That's <laughs> Ofsted making everyone teach the same since 1978. The Injustice League also have a satellite headquarters. Mm. Because of course they do. Why wouldn't they? Why and wouldn't I like they how he's got, Lex has got a little A-wing that flies in there. <laughs> little A-wing fighter, it is. It's an A-wing fighter, isn't it? Just with wings on the side, which the A-wings don't have. But yeah. And it docks from the cockpit, is that? It does look like it, yeah. So that shuttle has to perfectly match that docking area. Yeah. No other shuttle can dock here, apparently. No, yeah. So that's, that's what that means. Unless there are other docking bays. Possibly. For, other, for, for one other ship. <laughs> Maybe. For, the, for Solo and Grunder. In the Steve Jobs designed space satellite. <laughs> Everything has to fit with our product and <laughs> yeah. nothing else. Alright, fair enough. Um, we've already mentioned the treatment of, of Lois and Murray Jane in this story, but it really is quite bad. Lois has had to be saved by Peter Parker and kidnapped by Lex. And then in this scene here, Luther and Ock arrive at the satellite HQ. And sh- Lois says nothing when Lex goads her. And likewise, Murray Jane Watson says nothing. The sassy, snarky Murray Jane says nothing when Luther winds him up. And Murray Jane's only got to be catty to Lois. And and that's it. I mean, granted, Luther loves talking so much, it's doubtful she could have got a word in edgewise. Yeah. But I, I did think that it was very uncharacteristic of, at the very least, Murray Jane to not give him a mouthful. Given what he's put her through, I do like the um, the the what the, the trapped in a big ball. Yeah, but look at them; they're not attached to anything, but they're floating. Yeah. So they're manacled by the wrists, but they're not on seats. Yeah. So they're just floating. Mm. So what, what's he got in there to enable them to do that? It's never mentioned, is it? He doesn't have any gravity in the. So there's no gravity in there. No. But there's a. 
yeah. for them to breathe. All right, fair enough. I can go with that. I don't mind that at all. Because if the yeah, if the if the floating three, they've no way of pressuring, they've no friction to be able to puss against. Yeah. So yeah, okay, I can buy that. That's it's all just enough. Mary Jane kicking Lois away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've missed all of those. Scenes. Just a shoe floating around. Yeah. I mean, it is unfair to judge this by today's standards. Oh yeah. But you know, even seventies Lois and Mary Jane were depicted as being pretty sassy. Them just sitting here saying nothing. I don't buy that. It's a male-dominated space station. It is a male-dominated... And, and Lex and Dr. Octopus are sexist pigs. That's true. Women That's... aren't allowed to vote on the satellite. <laughs> on the Injustice League satellite. <laughs> yeah, so... But I, don't, I just didn't buy it. I didn't buy Lois and Mary Jane not, not giving him a mouthful. But all right. Uh, the dialogue has its moments. There's a, there's a wonderful interlude. Mostly it's there to service the story. There's nothing wrong with that. Was back in the seventies, but the 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 Jameson Morgan Eddie interlude, they both know each other. Yeah, no explanation. They just both know each other. Suck on that. <laughs> yeah. It's the people who demand an explanation for everything. Yeah. That says he who's just said that's not been explained. <laughs> <laughs> Hypocrite much? Yeah. So um, it's, it's actually really funny. I was particularly taken with the back and forth yes. on this page, but particularly. Take Clark Kent, for instance, and Jameson. Is that a serious offer? <laughs> like, he's really going to sell. It's, it's all right. It's, it's not like Morgan Edge needs him anymore. No, that's true. And it's, I, I like that both of them are having a, a drink, an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. Which and we, we know they're at a bar because there's a big sign outside that, that says, says bar. bar. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't see that a lot in, in this particular uh, era. So it's nice to see them actually having an alcoholic drink. Um, it's apt that Spider-Man mentioned James Bond early because this ending is very James Bond very James Bond yeah the the shots of Comlab 1 which cover two pages are really really well done of Luther taking control of Comlab 1 is absolutely fantastic but very reminiscent of the opening of is it You Only Live Twice with the satellite at the beginning I think it's You Only Live Twice I could be wrong, because, you know, occasionally the, the Connery and the Moore ones blend into memory. Yeah. But it, it reminded me of... Uh, that, that John Barry score came in there yeah. while I was reading this. So that, and that's never a bad thing. I do like, as well, Spider-Man can apparently pilot a space shuttle. <laughs> Since when? Superman gave him a quick lesson. I don't know, like, there's a little throwaway line that Superman says, Oh yeah, NASA lent us a space shuttle. <laughs> To a man who has no experience of being an astronaut, yeah. has never can't even drive. And it's exactly the same one as the one Lex had. Yeah, that's fortunate, isn't it? So it means they can dock. Yeah. Not that they need to, because it ends up that Luther brings them on board, when he could have just let Spider-Man die. But maybe Dr. Octopus wanted to kill him mano a mano, I don't know. Could be. Could be that, yeah. Uh, there's a lot happening in this part of the story to just bring the characters to where they need to be. Superman and Spider-Man are knocked out, and black out respectively. Just so they can be brought to the evil villain's lure, where he can then tell them his plans. Which, as we've pointed out, is very Bond. Yes. Lex Luthor is Blofeld in this story. Yeah. He could have been played by Telly Savalas. And Superman even attempts re-entry. Hey! Very good. <laughs> uh, Luthor turns the gravity off, so that they have the upper hand in the battle. Why does that affect Superman? Still fly anyway. Yeah. yeah, so I didn't, I didn't get why why that happened. He Con- Conway covers it. He does yeah. throw out a line of dialogue that says that Superman is still groggy from the laser. But I, I think it's a bit contrived that Doctor Octopus takes Superman out so easily. But as we predicted at the very beginning, once they start fighting, 
Dr. Octopus doesn't last long against Superman, and no, Superman rips his arms off. Spider-Man would do this in the 80s, and it psychologically damaged him, yeah. because the arms are now very much a part of his body. Yeah. So Superman here has essentially ripped his arms out of his socket. Yeah. And people say Superman in the Bronze Age was, was a Boy Scout. <laughs> Clearly not. Judging by that panel. I do love as well. Oh, dear. The page where Superman whips Hawk around is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And then we've got the brilliant Scooby-Doo moment where Dr. Octopus loses his glasses and he's on the floor looking for him like Thelma from Scooby-Doo. My glasses! My glasses! <laughs> Do you know, I never get bored of superhero comics that turn into episodes of Scooby-Doo. It's the brilliant. Yeah. There is no bad here. Um, without his specs, he can't see a single thing. Which is glorious. Absolutely glorious. And um, Doc obviously is planning on betraying Luther anyway. Yeah. Because of course he is. Because yeah. he's, he's Doctor Octopus. Is Spider-Man riding Lex Luthor? It though? does That's... look like Spider-Man is riding. There's a lot of that in this comic. Yeah. You'll notice. Lex has rid Doctor Octopus. <laughs> Spider-Man is now riding Lex. He has got his legs wrapped around Lex at the crotchal area. Yeah. So... Very homoerotic story. Yeah, homoerot- homoeroticism. Yay! A bunch of grown men in costumes wriggling about on a space station. <laughs> on top of each other. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's good. It's, um, it's, it's what we want from our comics. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm sure they didn't think of that. And, of course, uh, it's the, just us being it's silly. It's just us being silly. And, and looking at this with jaundiced... 21st century eyes yeah. where you can't make jokes about anything anymore that's true apart from the government but even then yeah, probably yeah. offend people so. so we'll stay away from talking about the government <laughs> and we will continue to address talking about the weather Lex, yeah, is, yeah, Lex yeah, has yeah. altered the weather satellite yeah, yeah, you do you see what I did there it's good that one um, and let's, let's address Lex's plan for a moment because it really is quite insane has Lex considered what he will do if he's cons- if he succeeds? Yeah, he's no, got nowhere to go. He didn't expect to succeed. <laughs> is that what it is? He'll be stuck on the satellite with Doctor Octopus, Spider Man, Superman, Murray Jane, and Lois Lane. Well, the plan there is simple, really. Is it? He will obviously defeat Superman once and for all. Okay. Doctor Octopus will be launched out of the airlock. Ah. Spider-Man probably as well mm. and then he's got two women to to, to repopulate the earth yeah yeah I, I don't think he thought this through I mean unless this is a tad darker as you suggest than the story intended to go and this is why he's kidnapped Murray Jane and Lois it could be, it could be. You, you may be onto something I hope I'm not I, I, I hope you're not onto <laughs> anything other than riding Dr. Octopus <laughs> I hope it's as simple and naive as that. I, I suspect that it is. You know, we didn't really go to the rapey area until Alan Moore and Matt Miller started writing comics. Yeah. Also, nobody expected Lex to win. No, even Lex. <laughs> Let's be honest, Lex did not expect to win. That's why he's trying to go through with such a ridiculous and outlandish plot. Because <laughs> he doesn't expect to win. He doesn't expect to destroy the world. Because if he did, somebody as smart as Lex may have had a thought at some point as to, oh, oh... Now what? Unless he was planning on going living on Lexor when this was all done with his kids and his missus and whatever. Yeah. It's possible. To, 
maybe that's why he's on the satellites. We can launch himself off there when he's done. He never mentions any of this in the plot. This is just us, <laughs> this is just us spitballing, obviously. Uh, the really good bit when Doctor Octopus realizes that what uh, Luther's plan is, yeah, and turns on him because Ock's not really into world domination. It's no, not really he's, what he's he into wants it to for. Steal things from metropolitan. Yeah, he just, yeah for no reason. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's just what Doctor Octopus likes to do. He certainly doesn't want to destroy the world. And it's actually Doctor Octopus who saves the world here. Yeah. It's Doc Ock who destroys the console that Lex is using to control Comlab One. Mm-hmm. So surely, in any court of law that will accept his arrest, <laughs> despite it being by a masked man whose name they don't really know, who probably never read him his Miranda rights. Yeah. Any court of law in the land would probably call Spider-Man and say, so what you're actually saying here is Dr. Octopus saved the world. And Spider-Man would have to kind of go, yeah, he, he kind of um, did. Not that Dr. Octopus aided Lex Luthor in trying to destroy the world. Yeah, but he, and, did, it, he did it inadvertently. And kidnapping. Yeah. And uh, breaking out of prison. But let's focus on this as his defence attorney. <laughs> he saved the world. He's walking, isn't he? He's walking out of that jail cell yeah. and straight out of court a free man. That's what's going to happen. Matt Murdock has so much to answer for. Don't you just love the law system? <laughs> he, to be fair, he saves the world. Of the two evils here, Dr. Octopus is the lesser. The lesser evil doesn't make you innocent, though. Well, that, that's all I'm saying is, in this particular instance, Dr. Octopus saved the world. <laughs> and I'm sure that's how Ock will remember it when he was Superior Spider-Man. If he were allowed to remember this, which he wasn't. Yes. So, okay, fair enough. Uh, Superman versus the Tidal Wave is awesome. That's absolutely brilliant. That is up there. When, when you say that, it doesn't sound awesome. Oh, it's brilliant! Superman versus Superman water. versus the Tidal Wave. <laughs> Superman vs. Water. <laughs> Aquaman's there going, You're stealing my shtick again! Superman's like, Sorry, dude, but you're not in this comic. Sorry, but my books are selling. <laughs> Aquaman was out selling Superman at some point in the new 52. That's sadly true. Um, so, yeah. But no, come on, that bit's brilliant. Superman's stopping the tidal wave. Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3, Wall of Sound, whack! Yeah. Love it. Absolutely love that. I love it when Superman does stuff that only he can do. That's when he's really cool. And that's when he, he earns his paycheck. As he's really cool when he can do things that no one yeah, else can do. When the writers remember that yeah, Superman yeah. can do stuff that only Superman can do. I mean, I'm sure Aquaman could have done something here, but could he have done it as cool as that? Yeah. Possibly. Maybe he got a row of whales to suck all the water. I don't know. That's not as cool, is it? It's, it's not as cool, though. But he probably could have prevented this from happening. Yeah. But Superman does it, and he does it so F. This is what I don't get when people say they don't like Superman. Superman's cool! Look what he just did! Yeah. Love it! Love the ending <laughs> to this. I really, really do. Um, as I mentioned earlier, taking Mary Jane was kind of just dumb luck. And wasn't necessary. So on the last page, Spider-Man says to Superman, yeah. in earshot of Dr. Octopus, Lex Luthor, Lois Lane, and Murray Jane Watson. Yeah. I guess it was just luck he grabbed my girl too, huh? <laughs> now, if we accept retroactive continuity, okay. Murray Jane knows that Peter's Spider-Man here. Yeah. So, okay, fine. But he's just given away his secret identity to Superman and Lois Lane. Who were both reporters. And Dr. Octopus. Yeah. And Lex Luthor. Now, yeah. three of those people don't matter because they're never going to be the comic ever again but he's just given away that Murray Jane is his girl to his arch adversary 
Yeah, it's just a shame you'll only be allowed to remember in Bottom 40 up. years' time. <laughs> and she's just like, well done, Peter. You <laughs> dumbass. Uh, last panel of them both swinging and flying in their own direction is great, taking the villains to jail, and leaving, leaving Mary Jane <laughs> and Lois Lane on the rooftop to fend for themselves. They don't talk to them. They don't say, everything's going to be okay now. Mary Jane and Lois just stand there saying jack off. They, they need to put aside their differences. That's what they're doing. Well, if you look at the body language in that top panel, it does look like they are. Yes. But purely decorative. They're not here for any other... This comic does not pass the bedshell test. <laughs> in that Lois and Mary Jane don't have a conversation about anything. Let alone not about a man. Yeah. Because <laughs> it would be like Lois telling Mary Jane, she's a reporter, and yeah, I'm a model. Oh, that's brilliant. Maybe I can get you a gig. Yeah, that'd be great. What were you doing when you were crudely kidnapped? Well, I was arguing with you about a man, but that was just silly. Let's not talk about that. No, nothing. Nothing at all. She doesn't even admire Mary Jane's elegant leather jacket. Yeah. Which is elegant. It's, it's, it's a nice leather jacket. Once again, as we pointed out, the issue finishes. I want to see the double date that the yeah. issue ends with. The double date were uh, Peter and... <laughs> Peter Clark. and Clark discuss yeah. everything and Mary Jane and Lois just sit there like good little women saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the double date I want not heard. Yeah. Um, also, as well, this last page. Did you get from this last page the subtext that Clark knows that he's Spider-Man and Peter knows that he's Superman? Didn't Did you not? All right. So it's, uh, Peter Parker gives the photos. Right. Clark gives the can- canister of film. Right. Clark says... Seems we covered the same event, Peter. I don't remember seeing you there. <laughs> and Peter follows it up with, I stick to the shadows, Kent. Apparently like you do. <laughs> Did you not think that they'd put two and two together there? Could be, yeah. I, that's what I got from it. I got yeah. that they were subtly, without outright saying it, I got that they were subtly acknowledging that they knew who each other was there, because it doesn't matter. They'd be kind of stupid to not to. Yes. So, your girlfriend's Lois Lane, and Superman rescued Lois Lane. And you're there with a canister of film, (laughs) but I didn't see you there. And on the last page, you just said to me, (laughs) as Spider-Man, that this redhead was your girl, but now I'm going on a double date with you and her. Does Spider-Man know about this? (laughs) Well, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. You're going out with Superman's girlfriend. Does he know about this? Because I think you've got the worst end of the deal if Superman finds out that Lois is cheating on him. I think you're going to find yourself floating around in the atmosphere. So yeah, that's what I got from it, because my interpretation of it, it doesn't matter if they find out each other's identity, does it? Because they're going to forget now. Well, no, and also they're never going to meet each other again until the sequel in 1981, and then they're never going to meet each other again. Yeah. Because when Marvel vs. DC happens, it's Ben Riley. Yes, it is. Not Peter Parker. Although... Technically, it would still be Peter, but not this Peter Parker. This would be the clone, but they're not the clone. It's all just too confusing, isn't it? But anyway, it doesn't matter either way. Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man is literally the kind of comic they don't make anymore. The format, the Treasury Edition, has long since gone the way of the Dodo as a regular concern. But both DC, IDW, and more recently Marvel have made stabs at trying to bring it back. But even in terms of its scope and grandeur, this doesn't seem to be in vogue at the moment. Even James Bond has been brought down to Earth. So perhaps it's silly to think that Superman should be preventing global missile disasters created by Lex Luthor. And I'll be the first to admit, this is silly. 
But it's gloriously silly. It's frequently over the top. Plot developments happen because they have to happen rather than organically. And it's shot through with Bronze Age melodrama and loud proclamations that end with multiple exclamation marks. But there is no denying the sheer visceral thrill of seeing Superman and Spider-Man together in the same panel and on the same comic. To be completely honest, this is a Superman story rather than a Spider-Man story. Spidey always seems out of place in stories that have global destruction as their theme. And because of this, Superman leads this story, making Spider-Man a supporting character. And I think this is why I prefer the second Superman-Spider-Man team-up. That's a Marvel story. It's even got Doctor Doom in it, which is just (laughs) awesome. But this is just so much fun. Although, 96 pages, I would have thought there'd have been more Clark Kent-Peter Parker interaction. Yeah. Bit disappointed in that. Doing a bit of journalism. Doing a bit of journalism. Yeah, yeah. Clark goes on a report. Yeah. Peter's his photographer. That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? We don't need Jimmy. It would give them a reason to replace Jimmy. Yeah, we don't. We don't need Jimmy. Jimmy's irrelevant in many ways. <laughs> what did you think of it? I I really enjoyed it. It's great, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's it just fun. The amount of times I just heard you laughing at it. Granted, one of them was the "How do you get so hard so quickly?" line. Yes. Which is unintentionally hysterical, <laughs> but you know. It's not just the story as well, but it's the art in it is great. It's the whole package, isn't it? It's yeah. it being a treasury edition. It's that yeah, like the like you said, the artwork is brilliant in many places. There's it, a lot of detail. It wouldn't look anywhere near as good in any other format. No. It doesn't look as good in the single comic version which I've also got. Yeah. It does look much better as, as this like it's like seeing like you want to see Hateful Eight on seventy millimeter. Yeah. It's like seeing Star Wars on the big screen. It's it's you know, it works it's, on T V. Yeah. But, it's designed for this. Yeah, but it's designed for this treasury dish. Well, that's it then, isn't it? It that's is. That's it for this special. I don't know when it's going up, so you've heard it. I obviously decided when it was going up. <laughs> Probably sometime in March. Happy March, everybody. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it'll probably be Captain America White. If it arrives. If it, it should really. arrive, if it's real. It should have arrived by then. And you're not home now for four or five weeks until Easter, are you? No. So we may bang out a couple of episodes then, as well. We may do one or two. Yeah. Instead of just one. See how it goes, if you're listening. See what, what life throws at us. Yep. In terms of being able to do stuff like that. Hope you enjoyed this. I did. Yeah, I, always, yeah. I always love doing this. It's like we don't stop doing it when we do do it. And uh, we'll be back next time, like I said, whenever that may be. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. Episodes drop intermittently. It is hosted by Andrew and Michael Leyland. All sound clips and music used in the show are for review purposes only, so don't sue us because we talk over them, so it's not like people can rip them off. Correspondence to the show can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, which is the email address. <laughs>